All Day September by Roger Koikendall Read by Bologna Times This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All Day September Quote, Some men just haven't got a good sense. They just can't seem to learn the most fundamental things, like when there's no use trying, when it's time to give up because it's hopeless. Unquote. The meteor, a pebble, a little larger than a match head, traveled through space and time since it came into being. The light from the star that died when the meteor was created fell on Earth before the first lungfish ventured from the sea. In its last instant, the meteor fell on the moon. It was impeded by Evans' tractor. It drilled a small, neat hole through the casing of the steam turbine and volatized upon striking the blades. Portions of the turbine also volatized. Idling at 8,000 RPM, it became unstable. The shaft tried to tie itself into a knot, and the blades, damaged and undamaged, were spit through the casing. The turbine again reached a stable state, that is, stopped, permanently stopped. It was two days to sunrise where Evans stood. It was just before sunset on a spring evening in September in Sydney. The shadow line between day and night could be seen from the moon to be drifting across Australia. Evans, who had no watch, thought of the time as a quarter after Australia. Evans was a prospector, and like all prospectors, a sort of jackknife geologist, selenologist, rather. His tractor and equipment cost two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand was paid for. The rest was promissory notes and grubstake shares. When he was broke, which was usually, he used his tractor to haul uranium ore and metallic sodium from the mines at Potter's Dyke to Williamson Town, where the rockets landed. When he was flush, he would prospect for a couple of weeks. Once he followed a stampede to Yellow Crater, where he thought for a while that he had a fortune in chromium. The chromite petered out in a month and a half, and he was lucky to break even. Evans was about 300 miles east of Williamson Town, the site of the first landing on the moon. Evans was due back at Williamson Town at about sunset, that is, in about 16 days. When he saw the wrecked turbine, he knew that he wouldn't make it. By careful rationing, he could probably stretch his food out to more than a month. His drinking water, kept separate from the water in the reactor, might conceivably last just as long, but his oxygen was too carefully measured. There was a four-day reserve. By diligent conservation, he might make it last an extra day. Four days reserve, plus one is five, plus sixteen days normal supply equals twenty-one days to live. In seventeen days he might be missed, but in seventeen days it would be dark again, and the search for him, if it ever began, could not begin for thirteen more days. At the earliest, it would be eight days too late.
Well, man, tis a fine spot you're in now, he told himself. Let's find out how bad it is indeed, he answered. He reached for the light switch and tried to turn it on. The switch was already in the on position. Batteries must be dead, he told himself. What batteries, he asked. There are no batteries in here. The power comes from the generator. Why isn't the generator working, man? he asked. He thought this one out carefully. The generator was not turned by the main turbine, but by a small reciprocating engine. The steam, however, came from the same boiler, and the boiler, of course, had emptied itself through the hole in the turbine, and the condenser, of course. The condenser! he shouted. He fumbled for a while until he found a small flashlight. By the light of this, he reinspected the steam system and found about three gallons of water frozen in the condenser. The condenser, like all condensers, was a device to convert steam into water so that it could be reused in the boiler. This one had a tank and coils of tubing in the center of a curved reflector that was positioned to radiate the heat of the steam into the cold darkness of space. When the meteor pierced the turbine, the water in the condenser began to boil. This boiling lowered the temperature, and the condenser demonstrated its efficiency by quickly freezing the water in the tank. Evans sealed the turbine from the rest of the steam system by closing the shutoff valves. If there was any water in the boiler, it would operate the engine that drove the generator. The water would condense in the condenser, and, with a little luck, melt the ice in there. Then, if the pump wasn't blocked by ice, it would return the water to the boiler. But there was no water in the boiler. Carefully he poured a cup of his drinking water into a pipe that led to the boiler, and resealed the pipe. He pulled on a knob marked nuclear start, safety bypass. The water that he had poured into the boiler quickly turned into steam, and the steam turned the generator briefly. Evans watched the lights flicker and go out, and he guessed what the trouble was. The water, man, he said. There is not enough to melt the ice in the condenser. He opened the pipe again and poured nearly a half gallon of water into the boiler. It was three days' supply of water, if it had been carefully used. It was one day's supply, if used wastefully. It was ostentatious luxury for a man with a month's supply of water and twenty-one days to live. The generator started again, and the lights came on. They flickered as the boiler pressure began to fail, but the steam had melted some of the ice in the condenser, and the water pump began to function. Well, man, he breathed, there's a light to die by. The sun rose on Williamson Town at about the same time it rose on Evans. It was an incredibly brilliant disk in a black sky. The stars next to the sun shone as brightly as though there were no sun. They might have appeared to waver slightly if they were behind outflung corona flares. If they did, no one noticed. No one looked toward the sun without dark filters. When Director McElroy came into his office, he found it lighted by the rising sun. The light was a hot, brilliant white that seemed to pierce the darkest shadows of the room. 
He moved to the round window, screening his eyes from the light, and adjusted the Polaroid shade to maximum density. The sun became an angry red-brown, and the room was dark again. McElroy decreased the density again until the room was comfortably lighted. The room felt stuffy, so he decided to leave the door to the inner office open. He felt a little guilty about this because he had ordered that all doors in the survey building should remain closed, except when someone was passing through them. This was to allow the air conditioning system to function properly and to prevent air loss in case of the highly improbable meteor damage. McElroy thought that, on the whole, he was disobeying his own orders no more flagrantly than anyone else in the survey. McElroy had no illusions about his ability to lead men. Or rather, he did have one illusion. He thought that he was completely unfit as a leader. It was true that his strictest orders were disobeyed with cheerful contempt. But it was also true his mildest requests were complied with eagerly and smoothly. Everyone in the survey, except McElroy, realized this. And even he accepted this without thinking about it. He had fallen into the habit of suggesting mildly anything that he wanted done, and writing orders he didn't particularly care to have obeyed. For example, because of an order of his stating that there would be no alcoholic beverages within the survey building, the entire survey was assured of a constant supply of homemade but passably good liquor. Even McElroy enjoyed the surreptitious drinking. "'Good morning, Mr. McElroy,' said Mrs. Garth, his secretary. Morning to Mrs. Garth was simply the first four hours after waking. "'Good morning, indeed,' answered McElroy. Morning to him had no meaning at all, but he thought, in the strictest sense, that it would be morning on the moon for another week. "'Has the power crew set up the solar furnace?' he asked. The solar furnace was a rough parabola of mirrors used to focus the sun's heat on anything that it was desirable to heat. It was used mostly from sunup to sundown to supplement the nuclear power plant. They went out about an hour ago, she answered. I suppose that's what they were going to do. Very good. What's first on the schedule? A Mr. Phelps to see you, she said. "'How do you do, Mr. Phelps?' Mr. McElroy greeted him. "'Good afternoon,' Mr. Phelps replied. "'I'm here representing the Merchants' Bank Association.' "'Fine,' McElroy said. "'I suppose you're here to set up a bank.' "'That's right. I just got in from Miroc last night, "'and I've been going over the assets of the Survey Credit Association all morning.' "'I'll certainly be glad to get them off my hands,' McElroy said. I hope they're in good order. There doesn't seem to be any profit, Mr. Phelps said. That's par for a non-profit organization, said McElroy. But we're amateurs, and we're turning this operation over to professionals. I'm sure it will be to everyone's satisfaction. I know this seems like a silly question. What day is this? Well, said McElroy, that's not so silly. I don't know either. Mrs. Garth, he called, 
What day is this? Why, September, I think, she answered. I mean, what day? I don't know. I'll call the observatory. There was a pause. They say, what day, where? She asked. Greenwich, I guess. Our official time is supposed to be Greenwich Mean Time. There was another pause. They say it's September 4th, one thirty a.m. Well, there you are, laughed McElroy. It isn't that time doesn't mean anything here. It just doesn't mean the same thing. Mr. Phelps joined the laughter. Ha! Banker's hours don't mean much at any rate, he said. The power crew was having trouble with the solar furnace. Three of the nine banks of mirrors would not respond to the electric controls, and one bank moved so jerkily that it could not be focused, and it threatened to tear several of the mirrors loose. "'What happened here?' Spotty Cade, one of the electrical technicians, asked his foreman. Kowalchuk over the intercommunications radio. I've got about a hundred pinholes in the cables out here. It's no wonder they don't work. Meteor shower, Kowalchuk answered, and that's not half of it. Walker says he's got a half dozen mirrors cracked or pitted, and Hoffman, on bank three, wants you to replace a servo motor. He says the bearing was hit. When did it happen? Cade wanted to know. Must have been last night, at least two or three days ago. All of them too small for radar to pick up, and not enough for seismo to get a rumble. Sounds pretty bad. Could have been worse, said Kowalchuk. How's that? Wasn't anybody out in it. Hey, Chuck, another technician, layman, broke in. You could maybe get hurt that way. I doubt it, Kowalchuk answered. Most of these were pinhead size, and they wouldn't go through a suit. It would take a pretty big one to damage a servo bearing, Cade commented. That could hurt, Kowalchuk admitted, but there was only one of them. You mean only one hit our gear? Layman said. How many missed? Nobody answered. They could all see the moon under their feet. Small craters overlapped and touched each other. There was, except in the places that men had obscured them with footprints, not a square foot that didn't contain a crater at least ten inches across. There was not a square inch without its half-inch crater. Nearly all of these had been made millions of years ago, but here and there the rim of a crater covered part of a footprint, clear evidence that it was a recent one. After the sun rose, Evans returned to the lava cave, that he had been exploring when the meteor hit. Inside, he lifted his filter visor and found that the light reflected from the small ray that peered into the cave door lighted the cave adequately. He tapped loose some white crystals on the cave wall with his geologist's hammer and put them into a collector's bag. A few mineral specimens would give us something to think about, man. These crystals, he said, look a little like zeolites. But that can't be. Zeolites need water to form, and there's no water on the moon. He chipped a number of other crystals loose and put them in bags. 
One of them he found in a dark crevice had a hexagonal shape that puzzled him. One at a time, back in the tractor, he took the crystals out of the bags and analyzed them as well as he could without using a flame which would waste oxygen. The ones that looked like zeolites were zeolites, all right, or something very much like it. One of the crystals that he thought was quartz turned out to be calcite, and one of the ones that he was sure could be nothing but calcite was actually potassium nitrate. Well now, he said, it's probably the largest natural crystal of potassium nitrate that anyone has ever seen. Man, it's a full inch across. All of these needed water to form, and their existence on the moon puzzled him for a while. Then he opened the bag that had contained the unusual hexagonal crystals, and the puzzle resolved itself. There was nothing in the bag but a few drops of water. What he had taken to be a type of rock was ice, frozen in a niche that had never been warmed by the sun. The sun rose to the meridian slowly. It was a week after sunrise. The stars shone coldly and wheeled in their slow course with the sun. Only earth remained in the same spot in the black sky. The shadow line crept around until earth was nearly dark, and then the rim of light appeared on the opposite side. For a while earth was a dark disk in a thin halo, and then the light came to be a crescent, and the line of dawn began to move around earth. The continents drifted across the dark disk and into the crescent. The people on earth saw the full moon set about the same time that the sun rose. Nickel Jones was the captain of a supply rocket. He made trips from and to the moon about once a month, carrying supplies in and metal and ores out. At this time he was visiting with his old friend McElroy. "'I swear, Mac,' said Jones, "'another season like this, and I'm going back to mining.' "'I thought you were doing pretty well,' said McElroy, as he poured two drinks from a bottle of scotch that Jones had brought him. "'Oh, the money I like, but I will say that I'd have more if I didn't have to fight the Union and the Lunar Trade Commission.' McElroy had heard all of this before. "'How's that?' he asked politely. "'You may think it's myself running the ship.' Jones started on his tirade, but it's not. The union it is that says who I can hire. The union it is that says how much I must pay and how large a crew I need. And then the commission. The words seemed to give Jones an unpleasant taste in his mouth, which he hurriedly rinsed with a sip of scotch. The commission, he continued, making the word sound like an obscenity, is it that tells me how much I can charge for freight. McElroy noticed that his friend's glass was empty, and he quietly filled it again. And then, continued Jones, if I buy a cargo up here, the commission it is that says what I'll sell it for. If I had my way, I'd charge only fifty cents a pound for freight instead of the dollar forty that the commission insists on. That's from here to earth, of course. There's no profit I could make by cutting rates the other way. Why not? asked McElroy. He knew the answer, but he liked to listen to the slightly Welsh voice of Jones. Near cost it is, now at a dollar forty. But what sense is there in charging the same rate to go either way 
when it takes about a seventh of the fuel to get from here to earth as it does to get from there to here what good would it do to charge fifty cents a pound asked mcelroy the nickel man the tons of nickel worth a dollar and a half on earth and not worth mining here the low-grade ores of uranium and vanadium they need these things on earth but they can't get them as long as it isn't worth the carrying them and then of course there's the water we haven't got we could afford to bring more water for more people and set up more distilling plants if we had the money from the nickel even though i say it who shouldn't two eighty a quart is too much to pay for water both men felt silent for a while then jones spoke again have you seen our friend evans lately the price of chromium has gone up and i think he could ship some of his ore from yellow crater at a profit he's out prospecting again i don't expect to see him until sundown i'll likely see him then i won't be loaded for another week and a half can't you get in touch with him by radio he isn't carrying one most of the prospectors don't they claim that a radio that won't carry beyond the horizon isn't any good and one that will bounce messages from earth takes up too much room well if i don't see him you let him know about the chromium anything to help another welshman is that the idea well protection it is that a poor welshman needs from all the english and scots speaking of which oh of course McElroy grinned as he refilled the glasses. Slante, McElroy Bach. Health, McElroy man. Slante, import Bach. Great health, man. The sun was halfway to the horizon, and earth was a crescent in the sky when Evans had quarried all the ice that was available in the cave. The thought grew on him as he worked that this couldn't be the only such cave in the area. There must be several more bubbles in the lava flow. Part of his reasoning proved correct. That is, he found that by chipping he could locate small bubbles up to an inch in diameter, each one with its droplet of water. The average was about one percent of the volume of each bubble filled with ice. A quarter of a mile from the tractor, Evans found a promising-looking mound of lava. It was rounded on top, and could easily be the dome of a bubble. Suddenly, Evans noticed that the gauge on the oxygen tank of his suit was reading dangerously near empty. He turned back to his tractor, moving as slowly as he felt safe in doing. Running would use up oxygen too fast. He was halfway there when the pressure warning light went on, and the signal sounded inside his helmet. He turned on his ten-minute reserve supply and made it to the tractor with about five minutes left. The air purifying apparatus in the suit was not as efficient as the one in the tractor. It wasted oxygen. By using the suit so much, Evans had already shortened his life by several days. He resolved not to leave the tractor again, and reluctantly abandoned his plan to search for a large bubble. The sun stood at half its diameter above the horizon. The shadows of the mountains stretched out to touch the shadows of the other mountains. The dawning line of light covered half of earth, and earth turned beneath it. Kowalczyk itched under his suit, 
and the sweat on his face prickled maddeningly because he couldn't reach it through his helmet. He pushed his forehead against the faceplate of his helmet and rubbed off some of the sweat. It didn't help much, and it left a blurred spot in his vision. That annoyed him. "'Is everyone clear of the outlet?' he asked. "'All clear,' he heard Cade report through the intercom. "'How come we have to blow the boilers now?' asked Lehman. "'Because I said so!' Kowalczyk shouted, surprised at his outburst and ashamed of it. "'Boiler scale,' he continued, much calmer. "'We've got to clean out the boilers once a year to make sure the tubes in the reactor don't clog up.' He squinted through his dark visor at the reactor building, a gray concrete structure a quarter of a mile distant. It would be pretty bad if they clogged up some night. "'Pressure's ten and a half pounds,' said Cade. "'Right, let her go,' said Kowalczyk. Cade threw a switch. In the reactor building, a relay closed. A motor started turning, and the worm gear on the motors opened a valve on the boiler. A stream of muddy water gushed into a closed vat. When the vat was about half full, the water began to run nearly clear. An electric eye noted that fact, and a light in front of Cade turned on. Cade threw the switch back the other way, and the relay and the reactor building opened. The motor turned, and the gears started to close the valve. But a fragment of boiler scale held the valve open. Valve stuck, said Cade. Open it, and close it again, said Kowalczyk. The sweat on his forehead started to run into his eyes. He banged his hand on his faceplate in an unconscious attempt to wipe it off. He cursed silently, and wiped it off on the inside of his helmet again. This time, two drops ran down the inside of his faceplate. Still don't work, said Cade. Keep trying, Kowalczyk ordered. Layman, get a Geiger counter and come with me. We gotta fix this thing. Layman and Kowalczyk, who were already suited up, started to cross to the reactor building. Cade, who was in the pressurized control room without a suit on, kept working the switch back and forth. There was light that indicated that the valve was open. It was on, and it stayed on, no matter what Cade did. The vat pressure's too high, Cade said. Let me know when it reaches six pounds, Kowalczyk requested, because it'll probably blow at seven. The vat was a light plastic container used only to decant sludge out of water. It neither needed nor had much strength. Six now said Cade. Kowalczyk and Lehman stopped halfway to the reactor. The vat bulged and ruptured. A stream of mud gushed out and boiled dry on the face of the moon. Kowalczyk and Lehman rushed forward again. They could see the trickle of water from the discharge pipe. The motor turned the valve back and forth in response to Cade's signals. "'What's going on out there?' demanded McElroy on the intercom. "'Scale stuck in the valve.' Kowalczyk answered. Are the reactors off? Yes. Vat blue. Shut up. Let me work, Mac. Sorry, McElroy said, realizing that this was no time for officials. Let me know when it's fixed. Geiger's off scale, Lehman said. We're probably okay in these suits for an hour, Kowalczyk answered. Is there a manual shutoff? 
Not that I know of, Lemon answered. What about it, Cade? I don't think so, Cade said. I'll get on the blower and rouse out an engineer. Okay, but keep working that switch. I checked the line as far as it's safe, said Lehman. No valve. Okay, Kowalczyk said. Listen, Cade, are the injectors still on? Yeah, there's still enough heat in these reactors to do some damage. I'll cut them in about fifteen minutes. I found the trouble, Lehman said. The worm gears loose on its shaft. It's slipping every time the valve closes. There's not enough power in it to crush the scale. Right, Kowalczyk said. Cade, open the valve wide. Lehman, hand me that pipe wrench. Kowalczyk hit the shaft with the back of the pipe wrench, and it broke at the motor bearing. Kowalczyk and Lehman fitted the pipe wrench to the gear on the valve, and turned it. Is the light off? Kowalczyk asked. No, Cade answered. Water's stopped. Give us some pressure. We'll see if it holds. Twenty pounds, Cade answered after a couple of minutes. Take her up to... No, wait, it's still leaking, Kowalczyk said. Hold it there. We'll open the valve again. Okay, said Cade. An engineer here says there's no manual cutoff. Like hell, said Lehman. Kowalczyk and Lehman opened the valve again. Water spurted out and dwindled as they closed the valve. What did you do? asked Cade. The light went out and came on again. Check that circuit and see if it works, Qualtrick instructed. There was a pause. It's okay, Cade said. Qualtrick and Lehman opened and closed the valve again. Light is off now, Cade said. Good, said Qualtrick. Take the pressure up all the way, and we'll see what happens. Eight hundred pounds, Cade said, after a short wait. Good enough. Kowalczyk said. Tell that engineer to hold up a while. He can fix this thing as soon as he gets parts. Come on, Lehman. Let's get out of here. <sighs> well, I'm glad that's over, said Cade. You guys had me worried for a while. Think we weren't worried? Lehman asked. And it's not over. What? Cade asked. Oh, you mean the valve servo you two bashed up? No, said Lehman. I mean, the two thousand gallons of water that we lost. Two thousand? Kate asked. We only had seven hundred gallons reserve. How come we can operate now? We picked up twelve hundred from the town sewage plant. What with using the solar furnace as a radiator, we can make do. Oh, God, I suppose this means water rationing again. You're probably right at least until the next rocket lands in a couple of weeks. Prospector Feared, Lost on Moon IPP, Williamson Town, Moon, September 21st Scientific Survey Director McElroy released a statement today that Howard Evans, a prospector, is missing and presumed lost. Evans, who was apparently exploring the moon in search of minerals was due two days ago, but it was presumed that he was merely temporarily delayed. Evans began his exploration on August 25th and was known to be carrying several days reserve of oxygen and supplies. Director McElroy has expressed a hope that Evans will be found before his oxygen runs out.
Search parties have started from Williamson Town, but telescopic search from Palomar and the new satellite observatory are hindered by the fact that Evans is lost on the part of the moon which is now dark. Little hope is held for radio contact with the missing man as it is believed he was carrying only short-range intercommunications equipment. Nevertheless, receivers are... Captain Nickel Jones was also expressing a hope. Anyway, Mac, he was saying to McElroy, a Welshman knows when his luck's run out, and never a word did he say. Like as not, you're right, McElroy replied, but I know Evans. He'd never say a word without any forebodings. Well, happen I might have a bit of Welsh second sight about me, and it tells me that Evans will be found. McElroy chuckled for the first time in several days. So that's the reason you didn't take off when you were scheduled, he said. Well, yes, Jones answered. I thought that it might happen that a rocket would be needed in the search. The light from Earth lighted the moon as the moon had never lighted Earth. The great blue globe of Earth, the only thing larger than the stars, wheeled silently in the sky. As it turned, the shadow of sunset crept across the face that could be seen from the moon. From full Earth, as you might say, it moved toward last quarter. The rising sun shone into Director McElroy's office. The hot light formed a circle on the wall opposite the window, and the light became more intense as the sun slowly pulled over the horizon. Mrs. Garth walked into the director's office and saw the director sleeping with his head cradled in his arms on the desk. She walked softly to the window and adjusted the shade to darken the office. She stood looking at McElroy for a moment, and when he moved slightly in his sleep, she walked softly out of the office. A few minutes later, she was back with a cup of coffee. She placed it in front of the director and shook his shoulder gently. "'Wake up, Mr. McElroy,' she said. "'You told me to wake you at sunrise, and there it is, and here's Mr. Phelps.' McElroy woke up slowly. He leaned back in his chair and stretched. His neck was stiff from sleeping in such an awkward position. "'Morning, Mr. Phelps,' he said. "'Good morning,' Phelps answered, dropping tiredly into a chair. "'Have some coffee, Mr. Phelps,' said Mrs. Garth, handing him a cup. "'Any news?' asked McElroy. "'About Evans?' Phelps shook his head slowly. "'Palomar called in a few minutes back. "'Nothing to report, and the sun was rising there. "'Australia will be in position pretty soon. "'Several observatories there. "'Then Cape Town.' There are lots of observatories in Europe, but most of them are clouded over. Anyway, the satellite observatory will be in position by the time Europe is. McElroy was fully awake. He glanced at Phelps and wondered how long it had been since he had slept last. More than that, McElroy wondered why this banker, who had never met Evans, was losing so much sleep about finding him. It began to dawn on McElroy that nearly the whole population of Williamson Town was involved, one way or another, in the search. The director turned to ask Phelps about this fact, but the banker was slumped in his chair, fast asleep, with his coffee, untouched. It was three hours later that McElroy woke Phelps. They found the tractor, McElroy said. Good, 
Phelps mumbled, and then his comprehension came. That's fine. That's just fine. Is Evans? Can't tell yet. They spotted the tractor from the satellite observatory. Captain Jones took off a few minutes ago, and he'll report back as soon as he lands. Hadn't you better get some sleep? Evans was carrying a block of ice into the tractor when he saw the rocket coming in for a landing. He dropped the block and stood waiting. When the dust settled from around the tail of the rocket, he started to run forward. The airlock opened, and Evans recognized the vacuum-suited figure of Nickel Jones. "'Evans, man,' said Jones, voice in the intercom. "'Alive you are.' "'A Welshman takes a lot of killing,' Evans answered. Later, in Evans' tractor, he was telling his story. "'And I don't know how long I sat there after I found the water.' He looked at the Goldbergian device he had made out of wire and tubing. "'Finally, I built this thing. These caves were made of lava. They must have been formed by steam sometime, because there's a floor of ice in all of them. The idea didn't come all at once. It took a long time for me to remember that water is made out of oxygen and hydrogen. When I remembered that, of course, I remembered that it can be separated with electricity. So I built this thing. It runs on an electric current through water, lets the oxygen loose in the room, and pipes the hydrogen outside. It doesn't work automatically, of course, so I run it about an hour a day. My oxygen level gauge shows how long. You're a genius man, Jones exclaimed. No, Evans answered, a Welshman, nothing more. Well then, said Jones, are you ready to start back? Back? Well, it was to rescue you that I came. I don't need rescuing, man, Evans said. Jones stared at him blankly. You might let me have some food, Evans continued. I'm getting short of that. And you might have someone send out a mechanic with parts to fix my tractor. Then maybe you'll let me use your radio to file my claim. Claim? Sure, man. I've thousands of tons of water here. It's the richest mine on the moon. End of All Day September by Roger Koikendall Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Beyond the Door by Philip K. Dick. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Beyond the Door by Philip K. Dick. Larry Thomas bought a cuckoo clock for his wife without knowing the price he would have to pay. That night at the dinner-table he brought it out and set it down beside her plate. Doris stared at it, her hand to her mouth. My God! What is it? She looked up at him bright-eyed. Well, open it! 
Doris tore the ribbon and paper from the square package with her sharp nails, her bosom rising and falling. Larry stood watching her as she lifted the lid. He lit a cigarette and leaned against the wall. A cuckoo clock, Doris cried, a real old cuckoo clock, just like my mother had. She turned the clock over and over, just like my mother had when Pete was still alive. Her eyes sparkled with tears. It's made in Germany, Larry said. After a moment he added, Carl got it for me wholesale. He knows some guy in the clock business. Otherwise I would have... He stopped. Doris made a funny little sound. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to afford it. He scowled. What, what's the matter with you? You've got your clock, haven't you? Isn't that what you want? Doris sat holding onto the clock, her fingers pressed against the brown wood. Well, Larry said, what's the matter? He watched in amazement as she leaped up and ran from the room, still clutching the clock. He shook his head. Never satisfied. They're all that way. Never get enough. He sat down at the table and finished his meal. The cuckoo clock was not very large. It was handmade, however, and there were countless frets on it, little indentations and ornaments scored into the soft wood. Doris sat on the bed, drying her eyes and winding the clock. She set the hands by her wristwatch. Presently she carefully moved the hands to two minutes of ten. She carried the clock over to the dresser and propped it up. Then she sat waiting, her hands twisting together in her lap waiting for the cuckoo to come out, for the hour to strike. As she sat, she thought about Larry and what he had said, and what she had said, too, for that matter. Not that she could be blamed for any of it. After all, she couldn't keep listening to him forever without defending herself. You had to blow your own trumpet in the world. She touched her handkerchief to her eyes suddenly. Why did he have to say that about getting it wholesale? Why did he have to spoil it all? If he felt that way, he needn't have gotten in the first place. She clenched her fists. He was so mean, so damn mean. But she was glad of the little clock sitting there ticking to itself, with its funny grilled edges and the door. Inside the door was the cuckoo, waiting to come out. Was he listening, his head cocked on one side, listening to hear the clock strike so that he would know to come out? Did he sleep between hours? Well, she would soon see him. She could ask him, and she would show the clock to Bob. He would love it. Bob loved old things, even old stamps and buttons. He liked to go with her to the stores. Of course, it was a little awkward, but Larry had been staying at the office so much, and that helped. If only Larry didn't call up sometimes to— There was a whir. The clock shuddered, and all at once the door opened. The cuckoo came out, sliding swiftly. He paused and looked around solemnly, scrutinizing her, the room the furniture. It was the first time he had seen her, she realized, smiling to herself in pleasure. She stood up, coming toward him shyly. Go on, she said. I'm waiting. The cuckoo opened his bill. He whirred and chirped quickly, rhythmically. Then after a moment of contemplation, he retired, and the door snapped shut. She was delighted. She clapped her hands and spun in a little circle. He was marvelous. Perfect. And the way he had looked around, studying her, sizing her up. He liked her. She was certain of it. And she, of course, loved him at once, completely. He was just what she had hoped would come out of the little door. Doris went to the clock. She bent over the little door, her lips close to the wood. Do you hear me? she whispered. I think you're the most wonderful cuckoo in the world. She paused, embarrassed. I hope you'll like it here. Then she went downstairs again 
slowly, her head high. Larry and the cuckoo clock really never got along well from the start. Doris said it was because he didn't wind it right, and it didn't like being only half-wound all the time. Larry turned the job of winding over to her. The cuckoo came out every quarter-hour and ran the spring down without remorse, and someone had to be ever after it, winding it up again. Doris did her best, but she forgot a good deal of the time. Then Larry would throw his newspaper down with an elaborate, weary motion and stand up. He would go into the dining-room where the clock was mounted on the wall over the fireplace. He would take the clock down, and making sure that he had his thumb over the little door, he would wind it up. "'Why do you put your thumb over the door?' Doris asked once. "'You're supposed to.' She raised an eyebrow. "'Are you sure?' I wonder if it isn't that you don't want him to come out while you're standing so close. Why not? Maybe you're afraid of him. Larry laughed. He put the clock back on the wall and gingerly removed his thumb. When Doris wasn't looking, he examined his thumb. There was still a trace of the nick cut out of the soft part of it. Who or what had pecked at him? One Saturday morning, when Larry was down at the office working over some important special accounts, Bob Chambers came to the front porch and rang the bell. Doris was taking a quick shower. She dried herself and slipped into her robe. When she opened the door, Bob stepped inside, grinning. Hi, he said, looking around. It's all right? Larry's at the office? Fine. Bob gazed at her slim legs below the hem of the robe. How nice you look today. She laughed. Be careful. Maybe I shouldn't let you in after all." They looked at one another, half amused, half frightened. Presently Bob said, "'If you want, I'll—' "'No, for God's sake!' She caught hold of his sleeve. "'Just get out of the doorway so I can close it. Mrs. Peters across the street, you know.' She closed the door. "'And I want to show you something,' she said. "'You haven't seen it.' He was interested. "'An antique, or what?' She took his arm, leading him toward the dining-room. "'You'll love it, Bobby.' She stopped, wide-eyed. I hope you will. You must. You must love it. It means so much to me. He means so much. He? Bob frowned. Who is he? Doris laughed. You're jealous. Come on. A moment later they stood before the clock, looking up at it. He'll come out in a few minutes. Wait until you see him. I know you two will get along just fine. What does Larry think of him? They don't like each other. Sometimes when Larry's here he won't come out. Larry gets mad if he doesn't come out on time. He says—' "'Says what?' Doris looked down. "'He always says that he's been robbed, even if he did get it wholesale.' She brightened. "'But I know he won't come out because he doesn't like Larry. When I'm here alone he comes right out for me, every fifteen minutes, even though he really only has to come out on the hour.' She gazed up at the clock. "'He comes out for me because he wants to. We talk. I tell him things, of course. I'd like to have him upstairs in my room, but it wouldn't be right." There was the sound of footsteps on the front porch. They looked at each other, horrified. Larry pushed the front door open, grunting. He set his briefcase down and took off his hat. Then he saw Bob for the first time. "'Chambers! I'll be damned!' His eyes narrowed. "'What are you doing here?' He came into the dining-room. Doris drew her robe about her, helplessly backing away. I, Bob began, that is, we, he broke off, glancing at Doris. Suddenly the clock began to whir. The cuckoo came rushing out, bursting into sound. Larry moved towards him. Shut that din off, he said. 
He raised his fist toward the clock. The cuckoo snapped into silence and retreated. The door closed. That's better. Larry studied Doris and Bob, standing mutely together. I came over to look at the clock, Bob said. Doris told me that it's a rare antique and that— Nuts! I bought it myself. Larry walked up to him. Get out of here. He turned to Doris. You too. And take that damn clock with you. He paused, rubbing his chin. No. Leave the clock here. It's mine. I bought it and paid for it. In the weeks that followed after Doris left, Larry and the cuckoo clock got along even worse than before. For one thing, the cuckoo stayed inside most of the time, sometimes even at twelve o'clock when he should have been busiest. And if he did come out at all, he usually spoke only once or twice, never the correct number of times. And there was a sullen, uncooperative note in his voice, a jarring sound that made Larry uneasy and a little angry. But he kept the clock wound, because the house was very still and quiet, and it got on his nerves not to hear someone running around talking and dropping things. And even the whirring of a clock sounded good to him. But he didn't like the cuckoo at all. And sometimes he spoke to him. Listen, he said late one night to the closed little door. I know you can hear me. I ought to give you back to the Germans, back to the Black Forest. He paced back and forth. I wonder what they're doing now, the two of them, that young punk with his books and his antiques. A man shouldn't be interested in antiques. That's for women. He set his jaw. Isn't that right? The clock said nothing. Larry walked up in front of it. Isn't that right? he demanded. Don't you have anything to say? He looked at the face of the clock. It was almost eleven, just a few seconds before the hour. All right. I'll wait until eleven. Then I want to hear what you have to say. You've been pretty quiet these last few weeks since she left. He grinned wryly. Maybe you don't like it here since she's gone. He scowled. Well, I paid for you, and you're coming out whether you like it or not. You hear me? Eleven o'clock came. Far off at the end of town the great tower clock boomed sleepily to itself. But the little door remained shut. Nothing moved. The minute hand passed on, and the cuckoo did not stir. He was someplace inside the clock, beyond the door, silent and remote. All right, if that's the way you feel, Larry murmured, his lips twisting. But it isn't fair. It's your job to come out. We all have to do things we don't like. He went unhappily into the kitchen and opened the great gleaming refrigerator. As he poured himself a drink, he thought about the clock. There was no doubt about it. The cuckoo should come out. Doris or no Doris. He had always liked her from the very start. They had got along well, the two of them. Probably he liked Bob, too. Probably he had seen enough of Bob to get to know him. They would be quite happy together, Bob and Doris and the cuckoo. Larry finished his drink. He opened the drawer at the sink and took out the hammer. He carried it carefully into the dining room. The clock was ticking gently to itself on the wall. Look, he said, waving the hammer, you know what I have here? You know what I'm going to do with it? I'm going to start on you first. He smiled. Birds of a feather. That's what you are. The three of you. The room was silent. Are you coming out or do I have to come in and get you? The clock whirred a little. I hear you in there. You've got a lot of talking to do. Enough for the last three weeks, as I figure it. You owe me." The door opened. The cuckoo came out fast, straight at him. Larry was looking down, his brow wrinkled in thought. He glanced up, and the cuckoo caught him squarely in the eye. Down he went, hammer and chair and everything, hitting the floor with a tremendous crash. For a moment the cuckoo paused, its small body poised rigidly. Then it went back inside the house. 
The door snapped tight shut after it. The man lay on the floor, stretched out grotesquely, his head bent over to one side. Nothing moved or stirred. The room was completely silent, except, of course, for the ticking of the clock. I see, Doris said, her face tight. Bob put his arm around her, steadying her. Doctor, Bob said, can I ask you something? Of course, the doctor said. Is it very easy to break your neck falling from so low a chair? It wasn't very far to fall. I wonder if it might not have been an accident. Is there any chance it might have been suicide? The doctor rubbed his jaw. I never heard of anyone committing suicide that way. It was an accident. I'm positive. I don't mean suicide, Bob murmured under his breath, looking up at the clock on the wall. I meant something else. But no one heard him. End of Beyond the Door by Philip K. Dick Blessed are the meek. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. White. Blessed are the meek by G. C. Edmondson. Every strength is a weakness, and every weakness is a strength. And when the strong start smashing each other's strength, the weak may turn out to be, instead, the wise. The strangers landed just before dawn, incinerating a goodly of bottom land in the process. Their machines were already busily digging up the topsoil. The old one watched, squinting into the morning sun. He sighed, hitched up his saffron robes, and started walking down toward the strangers. Griffin turned, not trying to conceal his excitement. You're the linguist. See what you can get out of him. I might, King Su ventured sourly, if you'd go weed the air machine or something. This is going to be hard enough without a lot of kibitzers cramping my style and scaring old Pruneface here half to death. I see your point, Griffin answered. He turned and started back toward the diggings. Let me know if you make any progress with the local language. He stopped whistling and strove to control the jauntiness of his gait. Must be the lower gravity and extra oxygen, he thought. I haven't bounced along like this for thirty years. Nice place to settle down if some promoter doesn't turn it into an old folks' home. He sighed and glanced over the diggings. The rammed earth walls were nearly obliterated by now. Nothing lost, he reflected. It's all on tape, and they're no different from a thousand others at any rate. Griffin opened a door in the transparent bubble from which Albanez was operating the diggers. Anything? he inquired. Nothing so far, Albanez reported. What's the score on this job? I missed the briefing. How do you make out on three, by the way? Eh, same old stuff. Pottery shards and the usual junk. See it once and you've seen it all. Well, Griffin began, it looks like the same thing here again. We've pretty well covered this system, and you know how it is. Rammed earth walls here and there, pottery shards, flint, bronze, and iron artifacts, and that's it. They got to the Iron Age on every planet, and then bluey. Artifacts all made for humanoid hands, I suppose. I wonder if they were close enough to have crossbred with humans. I couldn't say, Griffin observed dryly. From the looks of old Pruneface, I doubt if we'll ever find a human female with sufficiently detached attitude to find out. Who's Pruneface? He came ambling down out of the hills this morning and walked into camp. You mean you've actually found a live humanoid? There's got to be a first time for everything. 
Griffin opened the door and started climbing the hill towards Kong Su and Pruneface. Well, have you gotten beyond the me, Charlie stage yet? Griffin inquired at breakfast two days later. Kung Su gave an inscrutable East Los Angeles smile. As a matter of fact, I'm a little further along. Joe is amazingly cooperative. Joe? Spell it C-H-O-U if you want to be exotic. It's still pronounced Joe, and that's his name. The language is monosyllabic and tonal. I happen to know a similar language. You mean this humanoid speaks Chinese? Griffin was never sure whether Kung was ribbing him or not. Not Chinese. The vocabulary is different, but the syntax and phonemes are nearly identical. I'll speak it perfectly in a week. It's just a question of memorizing two or three thousand new words. Incidentally, Joe wants to know why you're digging up his bottom land. He was all set to flood it today. Don't tell me he plants rice, Griffin exclaimed. I don't imagine it's rice, but it needs flooding, whatever it is. Ask him how many humanoids there are on this planet. I'm way ahead of you, Griffin. He says there are only a few thousand left. The rest were all destroyed in a war with the barbarians. Barbarians? They're extinct. How many races were there? I'll get to that if you'll stop interrupting, Kung rejoined testily. Joe says there are only two kinds of people, his own dark, straight-haired kind, and the barbarians. They have curly hair, white skin, and round eyes. You'd pass for a barbarian, according to Joe, only you don't have a face full of hair. He wants to know how things are going on the other planets. I suppose that's my cue to break into a cold sweat and feel a premonition of disaster, Griffin tried to smile and almost made it. Not necessarily, but it seems our Iron Age man is fairly well informed in extraplanetary affairs. I guess I'd better start learning the language. Thanks to the spade work Kung Su had done in preparing hypno-recordings, Griffin had a working knowledge of the rational people's language eleven days later when he sat down to drink herb-infused hot water with Joe and other old ones in the low-roofed wooden building around which clustered a village of two hundred humanoids. He fidgeted through interminable ritualistic cups of hot water. Eventually, Joe hid his hands in the sleeves of his robe and turned with an air of polite inquiry. Now we get down to business, Griffin thought. Joe... You know by now why we're digging up your bottom land. We'll recompense you in one way or another. Meanwhile, could you give me a little local history? Joe smiled like a well-nourished bodhisattva. Approximately how far back would you like me to begin? At the beginning. How long is a year on your planet? Joe inquired. Your year is eight and a half days longer. Our day is three hundred heartbeats longer than yours. Joe nodded his thanks. More water. Griffin declined, suppressing a shudder. Five million years ago, we were limited to one planet, Joe began. The court astronomer had a vision of our planet in flames. I imagine you'd say our sun was about to nova. The empress was disturbed and ordered a convocation of seers. One fasted overlong and saw an answer. As the dying seer predicted the sun of heaven came with fire-breathing dragons— the fairest of maidens and the strongest of our young men were taken to serve his warriors. We served them honestly and faithfully. A thousand years later, their empire collapsed, leaving us scattered across the universe. Three thousand years later, a new race of barbarians conquered our lands. We surrendered naturally and soon were serving our new masters. Five hundred years passed and they destroyed themselves. This has been the pattern of our existence from that day to this. You mean you've been slaves for five million years? Griffin was incredulous. 
servitude has ever been a refuge for the scholar and the philosopher. But what point is there in such a life? Why do you continue living this way? What is the point in any way of life? Continued existence. Personal immortality is neither desirable nor possible. We settled for perpetuation of the race. But what about self-determination? You know enough astronomy to understand Nove. Surely you realize it could happen again. What would you do without a technology to build spaceships? Many stars have gone Nova during our history. Usually the barbarians come in time. When they didn't, you mean you don't really care? All barbarians ask that sooner or later, Joe smiled. Sometimes toward the end they even accuse us of destroying them. We don't. Every technology bears the seeds of its own destruction. The stars are older than the machinery that explores them. You use technology to get from one system to another. We used it, but we were never part of it. When machines fail, their people die. We have no machines. What would you do if this sun were to Nova? We can serve you. We are not unintelligent. Willing to work your way around the galaxy, eh? But what if we refuse to take you? The race would go on. Kung Su tells me there is no life on planets of this system, but there are other systems. You're whistling in the dark, Griffin scoffed. How do you know if any of the rational people survive? How far back does your history go? Joe inquired. It's hard to say exactly, Griffin replied. Our earliest written records date back some 7,000 years. You are all of one race? No, you may have noticed Kung Su is slightly different from the rest of us. Yes, Griffin. I have noticed. When you return, ask Kung Su for the legend of creation. More hot water? Joe stirred and Griffin guessed the interview was over. He drank another ritual cup, made his farewells, and walked thoughtfully back to camp. Kung, Griffin asked over coffee next afternoon, how well up are you on Chinese mythology? Oh, fair, I guess. It isn't my field, but I remember some of the stories my grandfather used to tell me. What is your legend of creation? Griffin persisted. It's pretty well garbled, but I remember something about the son of heaven bringing the early settlers from a land of two moons on the back of his fire-breathing dragon. The dragon got sick and died, so they couldn't ever get back to heaven again. There's a lot of stuff about devils, too. What about devils? I don't remember too well, but they were supposed to do terrible things to you and even to your unborn children if they ever caught you. They must have been pretty stupid, though. They couldn't turn corners. My grandfather's store had devil screens at all the doors, so you had to turn a corner to get in. The first time I saw the lead baffles at the pile chamber doors on this ship, it reminded me of home sweet home. By the way, some young men from the village were around today. They want to work passage to the next planet. What do you think? Griffin was silent for a long time. Well, what do you say? We can use some hand labor for the delicate digging. Want to put them on? Might as well, Griffin answered. There's a streetcar every millennium anyways. What do you mean by that? You wouldn't understand. You sold your birthright to the barbarians. End of Blessed Are the Meek by G.C. Edmondson Recording by M. White The Calm Man by Frank Belknap Long. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading 
by Greg Marguerite The Calm Man by Frank Belknap Long Sally watched the molten gold glow in the sky, then knew she would not see her son and her husband ever again on earth. Sally Anders had never really thought of herself as a wallflower. A girl could be shy, couldn't she, and still be pretty enough to attract and hold men. Only this morning she had drawn an admiring look from the milkman, and a wolf cry from Jimmy on the corner, with his newspapers and shiny new bike. What if the milkman was crowding sixty and wore thick-lensed glasses? What if Jimmy was only seventeen? A male was a male, and a glance was a glance. Why, if I just primp a little more, Sally told herself, I'll be irresistible. Hair ribbons and perfume, a mirror tilted at just the right angle, an invitation to a party on the dresser. What more did a girl need? Dinner, Sally, came echoing up from the kitchen. Do you want to be late, child? Sally had no intention of being late. Tonight she'd see him across a crowded room, and her heart would skip a beat. He'd look at her and smile, and come straight toward her with his shoulders squared. There was always one night in a girl's life that stands above all other nights, one night when the moon shone bright and clear and the clock on the wall went tick-tock, 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 one night when each tick said, You're beautiful, really beautiful. Giving her hair a final pat, Sally smiled at herself in the mirror. In the bathroom the water was still running, and the perfumed bath soap still spread its aromatic sweet odor through the room. Sally went into the bathroom and turned off the tap before going downstairs to the kitchen. "'My girl looks radiant tonight,' Uncle Ben said, smiling at her over his corned beef and cabbage. Sally blushed and lowered her eyes. "'Ben, you're making her nervous,' Sally's mother said, laughing. Sally looked up and met her uncle's stare, her eyes defiant. "'I'm not bad-looking, whatever you may think,' she said. Oh, now, Sally, Uncle Ben protested, no sense in getting on a high horse. Tonight you may find a man who just won't be able to resist you. Maybe I will and maybe I won't, Sally said. You'd be surprised if I did, wouldn't you? It was Uncle Ben's turn to lower his eyes. I'll tell the world you've inherited your mother's looks, Sally, he said. But a man has to pride himself on something. My defects of character are pretty bad, but no one has ever accused me of dishonesty. Sally folded her napkin and rose stiffly from the table. "'Good night, Uncle,' she said. When Sally arrived at the party, every foot of floor space was taken up by dancing couples, and the reception room was so crowded that, as each new guest was announced, a little ripple of displeasure went through the men in midnight blue and the women in Nile green and lavender. For a moment Sally did not move, just stood staring at the dancing couples, half hidden by one of the potted palms that framed the sides of the long room. Moonlight silvered her hair and touched her white throat and arms with a caress so gentle that simply by closing her eyes she could fancy herself already in his arms. Moonlight from tall windows flooding down, turning the dancing guests into pirouetting ghosts in diaphanous blue and green, scarlet and gold. Close your eyes, Sally. Close them tight. Now open them. That's it. Slowly. Slowly. He came out of nothingness into the light and was right beside her suddenly. He was tall, but not too tall. His face was tanned mahogany-brown, and his eyes were clear and very bright, and he stood there looking at her steadily until her mouth opened and a little gasp flew out. He took her into his arms without a word, and they started to dance. They were still dancing when he asked her to be his wife. "'You'll marry me, of course,' he said. "'We haven't too much time. The years go by so swiftly, like great white birds at sea.' They were very close when he asked her, but he made no attempt to kiss her. 
They went right on dancing, and while he waited for her answer, he talked about the moon. When the lights go out and the music stops, the moon will remain, he said. It raises tides on the earth, it inflames the minds and hearts of men. There are cyclic rhythms which would set a stone to dreaming and desiring on a night such as this. He stopped dancing abruptly and looked at her with calm assurance. You will marry me, won't you? he asked. Allowing for a reasonable margin of error, I seriously doubt if I could be happy with any of these other women. I was attracted to you the instant I saw you. A girl who has never been asked before, who has drawn only one lone wolf cry from a newsboy, could hardly be expected to resist such an offer. Don't resist, Sally. He's strong and tall and extremely good-looking. He knows what he wants and makes up his mind quickly. Surely a man so resolute must make enough money to support a wife. Yes. Sally breathed, snuggling close to him. Oh, yes. She paused a moment, then said, You may kiss me now if you wish, my darling. He straightened and frowned a little and looked away quickly. That can wait, he said. They were married a week later and went on to live on an elm-shaded street just five blocks from where Sally was born. The cottage was small, white, and attractively decorated inside and out, but Sally changed the curtains, as all women must, and bought some new furniture on the installment plan. The neighbors were friendly folk who knew her husband as Mr. James Rand, an energetic young insurance broker who would certainly carve a wider swath for himself in his chosen profession now that he had so charming a wife. Ten months later the first baby came. Lying beneath cool white sheets in the hospital, Sally looked at the other women and felt so deliriously happy she wanted to cry. It was a beautiful baby, and it cuddled close to her heart, its smallness a miracle in itself. The other husbands came in and sat beside their wives, holding on tight to their happiness. There were flowers and smiles, whispers that explored bright new worlds of tenderness and rejoicing. Out in the corridor the husbands congratulated one another and came in smelling of cigar smoke. Have a cigar, that's right. Eight pounds at birth. That's unusual, isn't it? Brightest kid you ever saw. Knew his old man right off. He was beside her suddenly, standing straight and still in the shadows. Oh, darling, she whispered. Why did you wait? It's been three whole days." Three days?" he asked, leaning forward to stare down at his son. Really? Didn't seem that long. Where were you? You didn't even phone. Sometimes it's difficult to phone, he said slowly, as if measuring his words. You have given me a son. That pleases me very much. A coldness touched her heart, and a despair took hold of her. It pleases you. Is that all you can say? You stand there looking at me as if I were a, a patient. A patient? His expression grew quizzical. Just what do you mean, Sally? You said you were pleased. If a patient is ill, her doctor hopes that she will get well. He is pleased when she does. If a woman has a baby, a doctor will say, I'm so pleased. The baby is doing fine. You don't have to worry about him. I've put him on the scales, and he's a bouncing, healthy boy. Medicine is a sane and wise profession, Sally's husband said. When I look at my son, that is exactly what I would say to the mother of my son. He is healthy and strong. You have pleased me, Sally. He bent as he spoke and picked Sally's son up. He held the infant in the crook of his arm, smiling down at it. A healthy male child, he said. His hair will come in thick and black. Soon he will speak, will know that I am his father. He ran his palm over the baby's smooth head opened its mouth gently with his forefinger and looked inside. Sally rose on one elbow, her tormented eyes searching his face. "'He's your child, your son,' she sobbed. 
A woman has a child, and her husband comes and puts his arms around her. He holds her close. If they love each other, they are so happy, so very happy, they break down and cry." "'I am too pleased to do anything so fantastic, Sally,' he said. When a child is born, no tears should be shed by its parents. I have examined the child, and I am pleased with it. Does not that content you?" "'No, it doesn't,' Sally almost shrieked. Why do you stare at your own son as if you'd never seen a baby before? He isn't a mechanical toy. He's our own darling, adorable little baby, our child. How can you be so inhumanly calm?" He frowned and put the baby down. "'There is a time for love-making and a time for parenthood,' he said. Parenthood is a serious responsibility. That is where medicine comes in. Surgery. If a child is not perfect, there are emergency measures which can be taken to correct the defect." Sally's mouth went suddenly dry. "'Perfect? What do you mean, Jim? Is there something wrong with Tommy?' "'I don't think so,' her husband said. His grasp is firm and strong, he has good hearing, and his eyesight appears to be all that could be desired. Did you notice how his eyes followed me every moment?' I wasn't looking at his eyes, Sally whispered, her voice tight with alarm. Why are you trying to frighten me, Jim? If Tommy wasn't a normal, healthy baby, do you imagine for one instant they would have placed him in my arms?" That is a very sound observation, Sally's husband said. Truth is truth, but to alarm you at a time like this would be unnecessarily cruel. Where does that put you? I simply spoke my mind as the child's father. I had to speak as I did because of my natural concern for the health of our child. Do you want me to stay and talk to you, Sally?" Sally shook her head. No, Jim, I won't let you torture me any more. Sally drew the baby into her arms again and held it tightly. I'll scream if you stay, she warned. I'll become hysterical unless you leave. Very well, her husband said. I'll come back tomorrow. He bent as he spoke and kissed her on the forehead. His lips were ice cold. For eight years Sally sat across the table from her husband at breakfast, her eyes fixed upon a nothingness on the green-blue wall at his back. Calm he remained even while eating. The eggs she placed before him he cracked methodically with a knife and consumed behind a tilted newspaper, taking now an assured sip of coffee, now a measured glance at the clock. The presence of his young son bothered him not at all. Tommy could be quiet or noisy, in trouble at school, or with an A for good conduct tucked with his report card in his soiled leather zipper jacket. It was always, eat slowly, my son, never gulp your food, be sure to take plenty of exercise today, stay in the sun as much as possible. Often Sally wanted to shriek. Be a father to him, a real father. Get down on the floor and play with him. Shoot marbles with him. Spin one of his tops. Remember the toy locomotive you gave him for Christmas after I got hysterical and screamed at you? Remember the beautiful little train? Get it out of the closet and wreck it accidentally. He'll warm up to you then. He'll be broken-hearted, but he'll feel close to you. Then you'll know what it means to have a son. Often Sally wanted to fly at him, beat with her fists on his chest, but she never did. You can't warm a stone by slapping it, Sally. You'd only bruise yourself. A stone is neither cruel nor tender. You've married a man of stone, Sally. He hasn't missed a day at the office in eight years. She'd never visited the office, but he was always there to answer when she phoned. I'm very busy, Sally. What did you say? You've bought a new hat? I'm sure it will look well on you. Sally, what did you say? Tommy got into a fight with a new boy in the neighborhood? You must take better care of him, Sally. There are patterns in every marriage. 
when once the mold has set, a few strange behavior patterns must be accepted as a matter of course. I'll drop in at the office tomorrow, darling, Sally had promised right after the breakfast pattern had become firmly established. The desire to see where her husband worked had been from the start a strong, bright flame in her, but he asked her to wait a while before visiting his office. A strong will can dampen the brightest flame, and when months passed and he kept saying no, Sally found herself agreeing with her husband's suggestion that the visit be put off indefinitely. Snuff a candle, and it stays snuffed. A marriage pattern once established requires a very special kind of rekindling. Sally's husband refused to supply the needed spark. Whenever Sally had an impulse to turn her steps in the direction of the office, a voice deep in her mind seemed to whisper, No sense in it, Sally. Stay away. He's been mean and spiteful about it all these years. Don't give in to him now by going. Besides, Tommy took up so much of her time. A growing boy was always a problem, and Tommy seemed to have a special gift for getting into things because he was so active. And he went through his clothes, wore out his shoes almost faster than she could replace them. Right now Tommy was playing in the yard. Sally's eyes came to a focus upon him, crouching by a hole in the fence which kindly old Mrs. Wallingford had erected as a protection against the prying inquisitiveness of an eight-year-old determined to make life miserable for her. A thrice-widowed neighbor of seventy without a spiteful hair in her head could put up with a boy who rollicked and yelled, perhaps. But peephole spying was another matter. Sally muttered, Enough of that, and started for the kitchen door. Just as she reached it, the telephone rang. Sally went quickly to the phone and lifted the receiver. The instant she pressed it to her ear, she recognized her husband's voice, or thought she did. Sally, come to the office, came the voice, speaking in a hoarse whisper. Hurry, or it will be too late. Hurry, Sally. Sally turned with a startled gasp, looking out through the kitchen window at the autumn leaves blowing crisp and dry across the lawn. As she looked, the scattered leaves whirled into a flurry around Tommy, then lifted and went spinning over the fence and out of sight. The dread in her heart gave way to a sudden bleak despair. As she turned from the phone, something within her withered, became as dead as the drifting leaves with their dark autumnal mottlings. She did not even pause to call Tommy in from the front yard. She rushed upstairs, then down again, gathering her coat, hat, gloves, and purse, making sure she had enough change to pay for the taxi. The ride to the office was a nightmare. Tall buildings swept past facades of granite as gray as the leaden skies of midwinter beehives of commerce where men and women brushed shoulders without touching hands. Autumnal leaves blowing and the gray buildings sweeping past. Despite Tommy, despite everything, there was no shining vision to warm Sally from within. A cottage must be lived in to become a home, and Sally had never really had a home. One night stand. It wasn't an expression she'd have used by choice, but it came unbidden into her mind. If you live for nine years with a man who can't relax and be human, who can't be warm and loving, you'll begin to eventually feel you might as well live alone. Each day had been like a lonely sentinel outpost in a desert waste for Sally. She thought about Tommy. Tommy wasn't in the least like his father when he came racing home from school, hair tousled, books dangling from a strap. Tommy would raid the pantry with unthinking zest, invite other boys in to look at westerns on TV, and trade black eyes for marbles with a healthy pugnacity. Up to a point, Tommy was normal, was healthy. But she had seen mirrored in Tommy's pale blue eyes the same abnormal calmness that was always in his father's, and the look of derisive withdrawal which made him seem always to be staring down at her from a height, and it filled her with terror to see that Tommy's mood could change as abruptly 
and terrifyingly cold. Tommy, her son, Tommy, no longer boisterous and eager, but sitting in a corner with his legs drawn up, a faraway look in his eyes. Tommy seeming to look right through her into space. Tommy and Jim exchanging silent, understanding glances. Tommy roaming through the cottage, staring at his toys with frowning disapproval. Tommy drawing back when she tried to touch him. Tommy, Tommy, come back to me! How often she had cried out in her heart when that coldness came between them. Tommy drawing strange figures on the floor with a piece of colored chalk, then erasing them quickly before she could see them, refusing to let her enter his secret child's world. Tommy picking up the cat and stroking its fur mechanically while he stared out through the kitchen window at rusty blackbirds on the wing. This is the address you gave me, lady. Sixty-seven Vine Street, the cab driver was saying. Sally shivered, remembering her husband's voice on the phone, remembering where she was. Come to the office, Sally. Hurry, hurry, or it will be too late. Too late for what? Too late to recapture a happiness she had never possessed? This is it, lady, the cab driver insisted. Do you want me to wait? No, Sally said, fumbling for her change purse. She descended from the taxi, paid the driver, and hurried across the pavement to the big office building with its mirroring frontage of plate glass and black onyx tiles. The firm's name was on the directory board in the lobby, white on black in beautifully embossed lettering, white for hope and black for despair, mourning. The elevator opened and closed, and Sally was whisked up eight stories behind a man in a checkered suit. Eighth floor, Sally whispered in sudden alarm. The elevator jolted to an abrupt halt, and the operator swung about to glare at her. "'You should have told me when you got on, miss,' he complained. "'Sorry,' Sally muttered, stumbling out into the corridor. "'How horrible it must be to go to business every day,' she thought wildly. "'To sit in an office, to thumb through papers, to bark orders, to be a machine!' Sally stood very still for an instant, startled, feeling her sanity threatened by the very absurdity of the thought. People who worked in offices could turn for escape to a cottage in the sunset's glow when they were set free by the moving hands of a clock. There could be a fierce joy at the thought of deliverance, at the prospect of going home at five o'clock. But for Sally was the brightness, the deliverance withheld. The corridor was wide and deserted, and the black tiles with their gold borders seemed to converge upon her, hemming her into a cool magnificence as structurally somber as the architectural embellishments of a costly mausoleum. She found the office with her surface mind, working at cross-purposes with the confusion and swiftly mounting dread which made her footsteps falter, her mouth go dry. Steady, Sally. Here's the office. Here's the door. Turn the knob and get it over with. Sally opened the door and stepped into a small deserted reception room. Beyond the reception desk was a gate, and beyond the gate a large central office branched off into several smaller offices. Sally paused only an instant. It seemed quite natural to her that a business office should be deserted so late in the afternoon. She crossed the reception room to the gate, passed through it, utter desperation giving her courage. Something within her whispered that she had only to walk across the central office, open the first door she came to, and find her husband. The first door combined privacy with easy accessibility. The instant she opened the door she knew that she had been right to trust her instincts. This was his office. He was sitting at a desk by the window, a patch of sunset sky visible over his right shoulder. His elbows rested on the desk, and his hands were tightly locked as if he had just stopped wringing them. He was looking straight at her, his eyes wide and staring. "'Jim,' Sally breathed. "'Jim, what's wrong?' He did not answer. He did not move or attempt to greet her in any way. 
There was no color at all in his face, his lips were parted, his white teeth gleamed, and he was more stiffly controlled than usual, a control so intense that for once Sally felt more alarm than bitterness. There was a rising terror in her now, and a slowly dawning horror. The sunlight streamed in, gleaming redly on his hair, his shoulders. He seemed to be the center of a flaming red ball. He sent for you, Sally. Why doesn't he get up and speak to you, if only to pour salt in the wounds you've borne for eight long years? Poor Sally. You wanted a strong, protective, old-fashioned husband. What have you got instead? Sally went up to the desk and looked steadily into eyes so calm and blank that they seemed like the eyes of a child lost in some dreamy wonderland barred forever to adult understanding. For an instant her terror ebbed and she felt almost reassured. Then she made the mistake of bending more closely above him, brushing his right elbow with her sleeve. That single light woman's touch unsettled him. He started to fall sideways and very fast. Topple a dead weight and it crashes with a swiftness no opposing force can counterbalance. It did Sally no good to clutch frantically at his arm as he fell to tug and jerk at the slackening folds of his suit. The heaviness of his descending bulk dragged him down and away from her, the awful inertia of lifeless flesh. He thudded to the floor and rolled over on his back, seeming to shrink as Sally widened her eyes upon him. He lay in a grotesque sprawl at her feet his jaws hanging open on the gaping black orifice of his mouth. Sally might have screamed and gone right on screaming if she had been a different kind of woman. On seeing her husband lying dead, her impulse might have been to throw herself down beside him, give way to her grief in a wild fit of sobbing. But where there was no grief, there could be no sobbing. One thing only she did before she left. She loosened the collar of the unmoving form on the floor and looked for the small brown mole she did not really expect to find. The mole she knew to be on her husband's shoulder, high up, on the left side. She had noticed things that made her doubt her sanity. She needed to see the little black mole to reassure her. She had noticed the difference in the hairline, the strange slant of the eyebrows, the crinkly texture of the skin where it should have been smooth. Something was wrong, horribly, weirdly wrong. Even the hands of the sprawled form seemed larger and hairier than the hands of her husband. Nevertheless, it was important to be sure. The absence of the mole clinched it. Sally crouched beside the body, carefully readjusting the collar. Then she got up and walked out of the office. Some homecomings are joyful, others cruel. Sitting in the taxi, clenching and unclenching her hands, Sally had no plan that could be called a plan. No hope that was more than a dim flickering in a vast wasteland, bleak and unexplored. But it was strange how one light burning brightly in a cottage window could make even a wasteland seem small, could shrink and diminish it until it became no more than a patch of darkness that anyone with courage might cross. The light was in Tommy's room, and there was a whispering behind the door. Sally could hear the whispering as she tiptoed upstairs and could see the light streaming out into the hall. She paused for an instant at the head of the stairs, listening. There were two voices in the room, and they were talking back and forth. Sally tiptoed down the hall, stood with wildly beating heart just outside the door. She knows now, Tommy, the deepest of the two voices said. We are very close, your mother and I. She knows now that I sent her to the office to find my stand-in. Oh, it's an amusing term, Tommy, an earth term we'd hardly use on Mars, but it's a term your mother would understand. A pause, then the voice went on. You see, my son, it has taken me eight years to repair the ship, and in eight years a man can wither up and die by inches if he does not have a growing son to go adventuring with him in the end. 
Adventuring, father? You have read a good many Earth books, my son, written especially for boys. Treasure Island, Robinson Crusoe, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. What paltry books they are! But in them there is a little of the fire, a little of the glow of our world. No, father, I started them, but I threw them away, for I did not like them. As you and I must throw away all Earth things, my son, I tried to be kind to your mother, to be a good husband as husbands go on Earth. But how could I feel proud and strong and reckless by her side? How could I share her paltry joys and sorrows, chirp with delight as a sparrow might chirp hopping about in the grass? Can an eagle pretend to be a sparrow? Can the thunder muffle its voice when two white-crested clouds collide in the shining depths of the night sky? You tried, father. You, you did your best. Yes, my son, I did try. But if I had attempted to feign emotions, I did not feel your mother would have seen through the pretense. She would then have turned from me completely. Without her, I could not have had you, my son. And now, father, what will we do? Now the ship has been repaired and is waiting for us. Every day for eight years I went to the hill and worked on the ship. It was badly wrecked, my son, but now patience has been rewarded and every damaged astro-navigation instrument has been replaced. You never went to the office, father? You never went at all? No, my son. My stand-in worked at the office in my place. I instilled in your mother's mind an intense dislike and fear of the office to keep her from ever coming face to face with the stand-in. She might have noticed the difference. But I had to have a stand-in as a safeguard. Your mother might have gone to the office despite the mental block. She's gone now, father. Why did you send for her? To avoid what she would call a scene my son. That I could not endure. I had the stand-in summon her on the office telephone. Then I withdrew all vitality from it. She will find it quite lifeless. But it does not matter now. When she returns, we will be gone. Was constructing the stand-in difficult, father? Not for me, my son. On Mars we have many androids, each constructed to perform a specific task. Some are ingenious beyond belief, or would seem so to Earthmen. There was a pause. Then the weaker of the two voices said, I will miss my mother. She tried to make me happy. She tried very hard. You must be brave and strong, son. We are eagles, you and I. Your mother is a sparrow, gentle and dun-colored. I shall always remember her with tenderness. You want to go with me, don't you? Yes, father, oh, yes. Then come, my son. We must hurry. Your mother will be returning any minute now. Sally stood motionless, listening to the voices like a spectator sitting before a television screen. A spectator can see as well as hear, and Sally could visualize her son's pale, eager face so clearly there was no need for her to move forward into the room. She could not move, and nothing on earth could have wrenched a tortured cry from her. Grief and shock may paralyze the mind and will, but Sally's will was not paralyzed. It was as if the thread of her life had been cut, with only one light left burning. Tommy was that light. He would never change. He would go from her forever but he would always be her son. The door of Tommy's room opened, and Tommy and his father came out into the hall. Sally stepped back into the shadows and watched them walk quickly down the hall to the stairs, their voices low, hushed. She heard them descend the stairs, their footsteps dwindle, die away into silence. You'll see a light, Sally, a great glow lighting up the sky. The ship must be very beautiful. For eight years he labored over it, restoring it with all the shining gifts of skill and feeling at his command. He was calm toward you, but not toward the ship, Sally, the ship which will take him back to Mars. 
How is it on Mars? she wondered. My son Tommy will become a strong, proud adventurer, daring the farthest planet of the farthest star. You can't stop a boy from adventuring. Surprise him in his books and you'll see tropical seas in his eyes, a pearly nautilus, Hong Kong and Valparaiso resplendent in the dawn. There is no strength quite like the strength of a mother, Sally. Endure it. Be brave. Sally was at the window when it came. A dazzling burst of radiance starting from the horizon's rim and spreading across the entire sky. It lit up the cottage and flickered over the lawn, turning rooftops to molten gold and gilding the long line of rolling hills which hemmed in the town. Brighter it grew and brighter, gilding for a moment even Sally's bowed head and her image mirrored on the pane. Then abruptly it was gone. End of The Calm Man by Frank Belknap Long The Crystal Crypt by Philip K. Dick This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite The Crystal Crypt by Philip K. Dick Stark terror ruled the inner-flight ship on that last Mars terror run, for the black-clad laters were on the prowl, and the grim red planet was not far behind. Attention! Inner-flight ship, attention! You are ordered to land at the control station on Deimos for inspection. Attention! You are to land at once! The metallic rasp of the speaker echoed through the corridors of the great ship. The passengers glanced at each other uneasily, murmuring and peering out the port windows at the small speck below, the dot of rock that was the Martian checkpoint Deimos. "'What's up?' an anxious passenger asked one of the pilots, hurrying through the ship to check the escape lock. "'We have to land. Keep seated,' the pilot went on. "'Land? But why?' They all looked at each other. Hovering above the bulging inner-flight ship were three slender Martian pursuit craft, poised and alert for any emergency. As the inner-flight ship prepared to land, the pursuit ships dropped lower, carefully maintaining themselves a short distance away. "'There's something going on,' a woman passenger said nervously. "'Lord, I thought we were finally through with those Martians. Now what?' "'I don't blame them for giving us one last going over,' a heavy-set businessman said to his companion. After all, we're the last ship leaving Mars for Terra. We're damn lucky they let us go at all. You think there really will be a war? A young man said to the girl sitting in the seat next to him. Those Martians won't dare fight, not with our weapons and ability to produce. We could take care of Mars in a month. It's all talk. The girl glanced at him. Don't be so sure. Mars is desperate. They'll fight tooth and nail. I've been on Mars three years. She shuddered. Thank goodness I'm getting away. If— Prepare to land, the pilot's voice came. The ship began to settle slowly, dropping down toward the tiny emergency field on the seldom-visited moon. Down, down the ship dropped. There was a grinding sound, a sickening jolt, then silence. We've landed, the heavy-set businessman said. They better not do anything to us. Terror will rip them apart if they violate one space article. Please keep your seats, the pilot's voice came. No one is to leave the ship, according to the Martian authorities. We are to remain here." A restless stir filled the ship. Some of the passengers began to read uneasily. 
Others stared out at the deserted field, nervous and on edge, watching the three Martian pursuit ships land and disgorge groups of armed men. The Martian soldiers were crossing the field quickly, moving toward them, running double time. This inner-flight spaceship was the last passenger vessel to leave Mars for Terra. All other ships had long since left, returning to safety before the outbreak of hostilities. The passengers were the very last to go, the final group of Terrans to leave the grim red planet. Businessmen, expatriates, tourists, any and all Terrans who had not already gone home. What do you suppose they want? the young man said to the girl. It's hard to figure Martians out, isn't it? First they give the ship clearance, let us take off, and now they radio us to set down again. Uh, by the way, my name's Thatcher, Bob Thatcher, since we're going to be here a while. The port lock opened. Talking ceased abruptly as everyone turned. A black-clad Martian official, a province later, stood framed against the bleak sunlight staring around the ship. Behind him a handful of Martian soldiers stood, waiting, their guns ready. This will not take long, the later said, stepping into the ship, the soldiers following him. You will be allowed to continue your trip shortly. An audible sigh of relief went through the passengers. Look at him, the girl whispered to Thatcher. How I hate those black uniforms. He's just a provincial later, Thatcher said. Don't worry. The later stood for a moment, his hands on his hips, looking around at them without expression. I have ordered your ship grounded so that an inspection can be made of all persons aboard, he said. You Terrans are the last to leave our planet. Most of you are ordinary and harmless. I am not interested in you. I am interested in finding three saboteurs, three Terrans, two men and a woman, who have committed an incredible act of destruction and violence. They are said to have fled to this ship. Murmurs of surprise and indignation broke out on all sides. The later motioned the soldiers to follow him up the aisle. Two hours ago a Martian city was destroyed. Nothing remains, only a depression in the sand where the city was. The city and all its people have completely vanished. An entire city, destroyed in a second. Mars will never rest until the saboteurs are captured, and we know they are aboard this ship. It's impossible, the heavy-set businessman said. There aren't any saboteurs here. We'll begin with you, the later said to him, stepping up beside the man's seat. One of the soldiers passed the later a square metal box. This will soon tell us if you are speaking the truth. Stand up. Get on your feet. The man rose slowly, flushing. See here. Are you involved in the destruction of the city? Answer. The man swallowed angrily. I know nothing about any destruction of any city, and furthermore— He is telling the truth, the metal box said tonelessly. Next person, the later moved down the aisle. A thin, bald-headed man stood up nervously. No, sir, he said. I don't know a thing about it. He is telling the truth, the box affirmed. Next person, stand up. One person after another stood, answered, and sat down again in relief. At last there were only a few people left who had not been questioned. The later paused, studying them intently. Only five left. The three must be among you. We have narrowed it down. His hand moved to his belt. Something flashed, a rod of pale fire. He raised the rod, pointing it steadily at the five people. All right. The first one of you. What do you know about this destruction? Are you involved with the destruction of our city? No, not at all, the man murmured. Yes, he's telling the truth, the box intoned. Next. Nothing. I, I know nothing. I had nothing to do with it. True, the box said. 
The ship was silent. Three people remained, a middle-aged man and his wife and their son, a boy of about twelve. They stood in the corner, staring white-faced at the later, at the rod in his dark fingers. It must be you, the later grated, moving toward them. The Martian soldiers raised their guns. It must be you. You there, the boy. What do you know about the destruction of our city? Answer. The boy shook his head. Nothing, he whispered. The box was silent for a moment. He is telling the truth, it said reluctantly. Next. Nothing, the woman muttered. Nothing. The truth. Next. I had nothing to do with blowing up your city, the man said. You're wasting your time. It is the truth, the box said. For a long time the later stood toying with his rod. At last he pushed it back in his belt and signaled the soldiers toward the exit lock. You may proceed on your trip, he said. He walked after the soldiers. At the hatch he stopped, looking back at the passengers, his face grim. You may go, but Mars will not allow her enemies to escape. The three saboteurs will be caught, I promise you. He rubbed his dark jaw thoughtfully. It is strange. I was certain they were on this ship. Again he looked coldly around at the Terrans. Perhaps I was wrong. All right, proceed. But remember, the three will be caught. Even if it takes endless years, Mars will catch them and punish them. I swear it. For a long time no one spoke. The ship lumbered through space again, its jets firing evenly, calmly, moving the passengers toward their own planet, toward home. Behind them Deimos and the red ball that was Mars dropped farther and farther away each moment, disappearing and fading into the distance. A sigh of relief passed through the passengers. What a lot of hot air that was, one grumbled. Barbarians, a woman said. A few of them stood up, moving out into the aisle toward the lounge and the cocktail bar. Beside Thatcher the girl got to her feet, pulling her jacket around her shoulders. Pardon me, she said, stepping past him. Going to the bar, Thatcher said. Mind if I come along? I suppose not. They followed the others into the lounge, walking together up the aisle. You know, Thatcher said, I don't even know your name yet. My name is Mara Gordon. Mara, that's a nice name. What part of Terra are you from? North America? New York? I've been in New York, Mara said. New York is very lovely. She was slender and pretty, with a cloud of dark hair tumbling down her neck against her leather jacket. They entered the lounge and stood undecided. Let's sit at a table, Mara said, looking around at the people at the bar, mostly men. Perhaps that table over there. But someone's already there, Thatcher said. The heavy-set businessman had sat down at the table and deposited his sample case on the floor. Do we want to sit with him? Oh, it's all right, Mara said, crossing to the table. May we sit here, she said to the man. The man looked up, half-rising. It's a pleasure, he murmured. He studied Thatcher intently. However, a friend of mine will be joining me in a moment. I'm sure there's room enough for all, Mara said. She seated herself, and Thatcher helped her with her chair. He sat down, too, glancing up suddenly at Mara and the businessman. They were looking at each other, almost as if something had passed between them. The man was middle-aged, with a florid face and tired gray eyes. His hands were mottled, with the veins showing thickly. At the moment he was tapping nervously. "'My name's Thatcher,' Thatcher said to him, holding out his hand. "'Bob Thatcher. Since we're going to be together for a while, we might as well get to know each other.' The man studied him. Slowly his hand came out. "'Why not? My name's Erickson. Ralph Erickson.' "'Erickson,' Thatcher smiled. 
You look like a commercial man to me. He nodded toward the sample case on the floor. Am I right? The man named Erickson started to answer, but at that moment there was a stir. A thin man of about thirty had come up to the table, his eyes bright, staring down at them warmly. Well, we're on our way, he said to Erickson. Hello, Mara. He pulled out a chair and sat down quickly, folding his hands on the table before him. He noticed Thatcher and drew back a little. P pardon me, he murmured. Bob Thatcher's my name, Thatcher said. I hope I'm not intruding here. He glanced around at the three of them. Mara, alert, watching him intently. Heavy set Erickson, his face blank, and this person. Say, do you three know each other? he asked suddenly. There was silence. The robot attendant slid over soundlessly, poised to take their orders. Erickson roused himself. Let's see, he murmured. What will we have? Mara? Whiskey and water. You, Jan? The bright, slim man smiled. The same. Thatcher? Gin and tonic. Whiskey and water for me also, Erickson said. The robot attendant went off. It returned at once with the drinks, setting on the table. Each took his own. Well, Erickson said, holding his glass up, to our mutual success. All drank. Thatcher and the three of them, heavy-set Erickson, Mara, her eyes nervous and alert, Jan, who had just come. Again a look passed between Mara and Erickson, a look so swift that he would not have caught it had he not been looking directly at her. "'What line do you represent, Mr. Erickson?' Thatcher asked. Erickson glanced at him, then down at the sample case on the floor. He grunted. "'Well, as you can see, I'm a salesman.' Thatcher smiled. "'I knew it. You get so you can always spot a salesman right off by his sample case. A salesman always has to carry something to show. What are you in, sir?' Erickson paused. He licked his lips, his eyes blank and lidded like a toad's. At last he rubbed his mouth with his hand and reached down, lifting up the sample case. He set it on the table in front of him. Well, he said, perhaps we might even show Mr. Thatcher. They all stared down at the sample case. It seemed to be an ordinary leather case with a metal handle and a snap lock. I'm getting curious, Thatcher said. What's in there? You're all so tense. Diamonds? Stolen jewels? Jan laughed harshly, mirthlessly. Eric, put it down. We're not far enough away yet. Nonsense, Eric rumbled. We're away, Jan. Please, Mara whispered. Wait, Eric. Wait? Why? What for? You're so accustomed to— Eric, Mara said. She nodded towards Thatcher. We don't even know him, Eric. Please. He's a Terran, isn't he? Erickson said. All Terrans are together in these times. He fumbled suddenly at the catch-lock on the case. Yes, Mr. Thatcher, I'm a salesman. We're all salesmen, the three of us. Then you do know each other. Yes, Erickson nodded. His two companions sat rigidly, staring down. Yes, we do. Here, I'll show you our line. He opened the case. From it he took a letter-knife, a pencil sharpener, a glass globe paperweight, a box of thumbtacks, a stapler, some clips, a plastic ashtray, and some things Thatcher could not identify. He placed the objects in a row in front of him on the tabletop. Then he closed the sample case. I gather you're in office supplies, Thatcher said. He touched the letter knife with his finger. Nice quality steel. Looks like Swedish steel to me. Erickson nodded, looking into Thatcher's face. Not really an impressive business, is it? Office supplies, ashtrays, paper clips. He smiled. Oh, Thatcher shrugged. Why not? They're a necessity in modern business. The only thing I wonder. What's that? Well, I wonder how you ever find enough customers on Mars to make it worth your while. 
He paused, examining the glass paperweight. He lifted it up, holding it to the light, staring at the scene within until Erickson took it out of his hand and put it back in the sample case. And another thing. If you three know each other, why did you sit apart when you got on? They looked at him quickly. And why didn't you speak to each other until we left Demos? He leaned towards Erickson, smiling at him. Two men and a woman. Three of you. Sitting apart in the ship, not speaking until the check station was passed. I find myself thinking over what the Martian said. Three saboteurs, a woman and two men. Erickson put the things back in the sample case. He was smiling, but his face had gone chalk white. Mara stared down, playing with a drop of water on the edge of her glass. Jan clenched his hands together nervously, blinking rapidly. You three are the ones the later was after, Thatcher said softly. You are the destroyers, the saboteurs. But they're lie detector. Why didn't it trap you? How did you get by that? And now you're safe outside the check station. He grinned, staring around at them. I'll be damned. And I really thought you were a salesman, Erickson. You really fooled me. Erickson relaxed a little. Well, Mr. Thatcher, it's in a good cause. I'm sure you have no love for Mars, either. No Terran does, and I see you're leaving with the rest of us. True, Thatcher said. You must certainly have an interesting account to give, the three of you. He looked around the table. We still have an hour or so of travel. Sometimes it gets dull, this Mars terror run. Nothing to see, nothing to do but sit and drink in the lounge. He raised his eyes slowly. Any chance you'd like to spin a story to keep us awake? Jan and Mara looked at Erickson. Go on, Jan said. He knows who we are. Tell him the rest of the story. You might as well, Mara said. Jan let out a sigh suddenly, a sigh of relief. Let's put the cards on the table. Get this weight off us. I'm tired of sneaking around, slipping. Sure, Erickson said expansively. Why not? He settled back in his chair, unbuttoning his vest. Certainly, Mr. Thatcher, I'll be glad to spin you a story, and I'm sure it will be interesting enough to keep you awake. They ran through the groves of dead trees, leaping across the sun-baked Martian soil, running silently together. They went up a little rise, across a narrow ridge. Suddenly Eric stopped, throwing himself down flat on the ground. The others did the same, pressing themselves against the soil, gasping for breath. Be silent, Eric muttered. He raised himself a little. No noise. There'll be laters nearby from now on. We don't dare take any chances. Between the three people lying in the grove of dead trees and the city was a barren, level waste of desert, over a mile of blasted sand. No trees or bushes marred this smooth, parched surface. Only an occasional wind, a dry wind eddying and twisting, blew the sand up into little rills. A faint odor came to them, a bitter smell of heat and sand carried by the wind. Eric pointed. Look, the city. There it is. They stared, still breathing deeply from their race through the trees. The city was close, closer than they had ever seen it before. Never had they gotten so close to it in times past. Terrans were never allowed near the great Martian cities, the centers of Martian life. Even in ordinary times, when there was no threat of approaching war, the Martians shrewdly kept all Terrans away from their citadels, partly from fear partly from a deep, innate sense of hostility toward the white-skinned visitors whose commercial ventures had earned them the respect and the dislike of the whole system. How does it look to you? Eric said. The city was huge, much larger than they had imagined from the drawings and models they had studied so carefully back in New York in the War Ministry office. Huge it was, huge and stark, black towers rising up against the sky, 
incredibly thin columns of ancient metal, columns that had stood wind and sun for centuries. Around the city was a wall of stone, red stone, immense bricks that had been lugged there and fitted into place by slaves of the early Martian dynasties, under the whiplash of the first great kings of Mars. An ancient sun-baked city, a city set in the middle of a wasted plain, beyond groves of dead trees, a city seldom seen by Terrans, but a city studied on maps and charts in every war office on Terra, a city that contained for all its ancient stone and archaic towers the ruling group of all Mars, the council of senior leaders, black-clad men who governed and ruled with an iron hand. The senior leaders, twelve fantastic and devoted men, black priests, but priests with flashing rods of fire, lie detectors, rocket ships, intraspace cannon, and many more things the Terran Senate could only conjecture about, the senior leaders and their subordinate province leaders. Eric and the two behind him suppressed a shudder. We've got to be careful, Eric said again. We'll be passing among them soon, if they guess who we are or what we're here for. He snapped open the case he carried, glancing inside for a second. Then he closed it again, grasping the handle firmly. Let's go, he said. He stood up slowly. You two, come up beside me. I want to make sure you look the way you should. Mara and Jan stepped quickly ahead. Eric studied them critically as the three of them walked slowly down the slope onto the plain toward the towering black spires of the city. Jan, Eric said, take hold of her hand. Remember, you're going to marry her. She's your bride, and Martian peasants think a lot of their brides. Jan was dressed in the short trousers and coat of the Martian farmer. A knotted rope tied around his waist, a hat on his head to keep off the sun. His skin was dark, colored by dye until it was almost bronze. You look fine, Eric said to him. He glanced at Mara. Her black hair was tied in a knot, looped through a hollowed-out yuke bone. Her face was dark, too, dark and lined with colored ceremonial pigment, green and orange stripes across her cheeks. Earrings were strung through her ears. On her feet were tiny slippers of peru hide, laced around her ankles, and she wore long translucent Martian trousers with a bright sash tied around her waist. Between her small breasts a chain of stone beads rested, good luck charms for the coming marriage. All right, Eric said. He himself wore the flowing gray robe of a Martian priest, dirty robes that were supposed to remain on him all his life, to be buried around him when he died. I think we'll get past the guards. There should be heavy morning traffic on the road." They walked on, the hard sand crunching under their feet. Against the horizon they could see specks moving, other persons going towards the city, farmers and peasants and merchants bringing their crops and goods to market. "'See the cart?' Mara exclaimed. They were nearing a narrow road. Two ruts worn into the sand, a Martian huffa was pulling the cart, its great sides wet with perspiration, its tongue hanging out. The cart was piled high with bales of cloth, rough country cloth, hand-dipped. A bent farmer urged the huffa on. And there, she pointed, smiling. A group of merchants riding small animals were moving along behind the cart, Martians in long robes, their faces hidden by sand masks. On each animal was a pack, carefully tied on with rope, and beyond the merchants, plodding dully along, were peasants and farmers in an endless procession, some riding carts or animals, but mostly on foot. Mara and Jan and Eric joined the line of people, melting in behind the merchants. No one noticed them, no one looked up or gave any sign. The march continued as before. Neither Jan nor Mara said anything to each other. They walked a little behind Eric, who paced with a certain dignity, a certain bearing becoming his position. Once he slowed down, pointing up at the sky. Look, he murmured in the Martian Hill dialect, 
See that? Two black dots circled lazily. Martian patrol craft, the military on the outlook for any sign of unusual activity. War was almost ready to break out with Terra, any day, almost any moment. We'll be just in time, Eric said. Tomorrow will be too late. The last ship will have left Mars. I hope nothing stops us, Mara said. I want to get back home when we're through. Half an hour passed. They neared the city, the wall growing as they walked, rising higher and higher until it seemed to blot out the sky itself. A vast wall, a wall of eternal stone that had felt the wind and sun for centuries. A group of Martian soldiers were standing at the entrance, the single passage gate hewn into the rock leading to the city. As each person went through, the soldiers examined him, poking his garments, looking into his load. Eric tensed. The line had slowed almost to a halt. It'll be our turn soon, he murmured. Be prepared. Let's hope no laters come around, Jan said. The soldiers aren't so bad. Mara was standing up at the wall and the towers beyond. Under their feet the ground trembled, vibrating and shaking. She could see tongues of flame rising from the towers, from the deep underground factories and forges of the city. The air was thick and dense with particles of soot. Mara rubbed her mouth, coughing. Here they come, Eric said softly. The merchants had been examined and allowed to pass through the dark gate, the entrance through the wall into the city. They and their silent animals had already disappeared inside. The leader of the group of soldiers was beckoning impatiently to Eric, waving him on. "'Come along,' he said. "'Hurry up there, old man!' Eric advanced slowly, his arms wrapped around his body, looking down at the ground. "'Who are you and what's your business here?' the soldier demanded, his hands on his hips, his gun hanging idly at his waist. Most of the soldiers were lounging lazily, leaning against the wall, some even squatting in the shade. Flies crawled on the face of one who had fallen asleep, his gun on the ground beside him. "'My business?' Eric murmured. "'I am a village priest.' "'Why do you want to enter the city?' "'I must bring these two people before the magistrate to marry them,' he indicated Mara and Jan, standing a little behind him. "'That is the law the laters have made.' The soldier laughed. He circled around Eric. "'What do you have in that bag you carry?' "'Laundry. We stay the night.' What village are you from? Kronos. Kronos? The soldier looked to a companion. Ever hear of Kronos? A backward pigsty. I saw it once on a hunting trip. The leader of the soldiers nodded to Jan and Mara. The two of them advanced, their hands clasped, standing close together. One of the soldiers put his hand on Mara's bare shoulder, turning her around. Nice little wife you're getting, he said. Good and firm-looking. He winked, grinning lewdly. Jan glanced at him in sullen resentment. The soldiers guffawed. All right, the leader said to Eric. You people can pass. Eric took a small purse from his robes and gave the soldier a coin. Then the three of them went into the dark tunnel that was the entrance passing through the wall of stone into the city beyond. They were within the city. Now, Eric whispered, hurry. Around them the city roared and cracked, the sound of a thousand vents and machines shaking the stones under their feet. Eric led Mara and Jan into a corner by a row of brick warehouses. People were everywhere, hurrying back and forth, shouting above the din. Merchants, peddlers, soldiers, street women. Eric bent down and opened the case he carried. From the case he quickly took three small coils of fine metal, intricate meshed wires and veins worked together into a small cone. Jan took one and Mara took one. Eric put the remaining cone into his robe and snapped the case shut. Now remember. 
The coils must be buried in such a way that the line runs through the center of the city. We must trisect the main section where the largest concentration of buildings is. Remember the maps. Watch the alleys and streets carefully. Talk to no one if you can help it. Each of you has enough Martian money to buy your way out of trouble. Watch especially for cut purses, and for heaven's sake, don't get lost." Eric broke off. Two black-clad laders were coming along the inside of the wall, strolling together with their hands behind their backs. They noticed the three who stood in the corner by the warehouses and stopped. "'Go,' Eric muttered, and be back here at sundown,' he smiled grimly, or never come back. Each went off a different way, walking quickly without looking back. The laders watched them go. The little bride was quite lovely, one later said. Those hill people have the stamp of nobility in their blood from the old times. A very lucky young peasant to possess her, the other said. They went on. Eric looked after them, still smiling a little. Then he joined the surging mass of people that milled eternally through the streets of the city. At dusk they met outside the gate. The sun was soon to set, and the air had turned thin and frigid. It cut through their clothing like knives. Mara huddled against Jan, trembling and rubbing her bare arms. "'Well,' Eric said, "'did you both succeed?' Around them peasants and merchants were pouring from the entrance, leaving the city to return to their farms and villages, starting the long trip back across the plain toward the hills beyond. None of them noticed the shivering girl and the young man and the old priest standing by the wall. "'Mine's in place,' Jan said, "'on the other side of the city, on the extreme edge, buried by a well.' Mine's in the industrial section, Mara whispered, her teeth chattering. Jan, give me something to put over me. I'm freezing. Good, Eric said. Then the three coils should trisect dead center, if the models were correct. He looked up at the darkening sky. Already stars were beginning to show. Two dots, the evening patrol, moved slowly toward the horizon. Let's hurry. It won't be long. They joined the line of Martians moving along the road away from the city. Behind them the city was losing itself in the somber tones of night, its black spires disappearing into darkness. They walked silently with the country people until the flat ridge of dead trees became visible on the horizon. Then they left the road and turned off, walking towards the trees. Almost time, Eric said. He increased his pace, looking back at Jan and Mara impatiently. Come on! They hurried, making their way through the twilight, stumbling over rocks and dead branches up the side of the ridge. At the top Eric halted, standing with his hands on his hips, looking back. See, he murmured, the city. The last time we'll ever see it this way. Can I sit down, Mara said. My feet hurt me. Jan pulled at Eric's sleeve. Hurry, Eric, not much time left. He laughed nervously. If everything goes right, we'll be able to look at it forever. But not like this, Eric murmured. He squatted down, snapping his case open. He took some tubes and wiring out and assembled them together on the ground at the peak of the ridge. A small pyramid of wire and plastic grew, shaped by his expert hands. At last he grunted, standing up. All right. Is it pointed directly at the city? Mara asked anxiously, looking down at the pyramid. Eric nodded. Yes, it's placed according— He stopped suddenly, stiffening. Get back! It's time! Hurry! Jan ran down the far side of the slope, away from the city, pulling Mara with him. Eric came quickly after, looking back at the distant spires almost lost in the night sky. Down! Jan sprawled out, Mara beside him, her trembling body pressed against his. Eric settled down into the sand and dead branches, still trying to see. I want to see it, he murmured. A miracle! I want to see! 
A flash, a blinding burst of violet light lit up the sky. Eric clapped his hands over his eyes. The flash whitened, growing larger, expanding. Suddenly there was a roar and a furious hot wind rushed past him, throwing him on his face in the sand. The hot dry wind licked and seared at them, crackling the bits of branches into flame. Mara and Jan shut their eyes, pressed tightly together. God, Eric muttered. The storm passed. They opened their eyes slowly. The sky was still alive with fire, a drifting cloud of sparks that was beginning to dissipate with the night wind. Eric stood up unsteadily, helping Jan and Mara to their feet. The three of them stood, staring silently across the dark waste, the black plain, none of them speaking. The city was gone. At last Eric turned away. That part's done, he said. Now the rest. Give me a hand, Jan. There'll be a thousand patrol ships around here in a minute. I see one already, Mara said, pointing up. A spot winked in the sky, a rapidly moving spot. They're coming, Eric. There was a throb of chill fear in her voice. I know. Eric and Jan squatted on the ground around the pyramid of tubes and plastic, pulling the pyramid apart. The pyramid was fused, fused together like molten glass. Eric tore the pieces away with trembling fingers. From the remains of the pyramid he pulled something forth, something he held up high, trying to make it out in the darkness. Jan and Mara came close to see, both staring up intently, almost without breathing. There it is, Eric said. There! In his hand was a globe, a small transparent globe of glass. Within the glass something moved, something minute and fragile, spires almost too small to be seen, microscopic, a complex web swimming within the hollow glass globe, a web of spires, a city. Eric put the globe into the case and snapped it shut. Let's go, he said. They began to lope back through the trees, back the way they had come before. We'll change in the car, he said as they ran. I think we should keep these clothes on until we're actually inside the car. We still might encounter someone. I'll be glad to get my own clothing on again, Jan said. I feel funny in these little pants. How do you think I feel, Mara gasped. I'm freezing in this, what there is of it. All young Martian brides dress that way, Eric said. He clutched the case tightly as they ran. I think it looks fine. Thank you, Mara said, but it's cold. What do you suppose they'll think? Jan asked. They'll assume the city was destroyed, won't they? That's certain. Yes, Eric said. They'll be sure it was blown up. We can count on that. And it will be damn important to us that they think so. The car should be around here someplace, Mara said, slowing down. No, farther on, Eric said, past that little hill over there in the ravine by the trees. It's so hard to see where we are. Shall I light something? Jan said. No. There may be patrols around who—' He halted abruptly. Jan and Mara stopped beside him. "'What?' Mara began. A light glimmered. Something stirred in the darkness. There was a sound. "'Quick!' Eric rasped. He dropped, throwing the case far away from him into the bushes. He straightened up tensely. A figure loomed up, moving through the darkness, and behind it came more figures—men, soldiers in uniform. The light flashed up brightly, blinding them. Eric closed his eyes. The light left him, touching Mara and Jan, standing silently together, clasping hands. Then it flicked down to the ground and around in a circle. A later stepped forward, a tall figure in black, with his soldiers close behind him, their guns ready. You three, the later said. Who are you? Don't move. Stand where you are. He came up to Eric, peering at him intently, his hard Martian face without expression. He went all around Eric, examining his robes, his sleeves. Please, Eric began in a quavering voice, but the later cut him off. I'll do the talking. Who are you three? What are you doing here? Speak up. 
We—we are going back to our village," Eric muttered, staring down, his hands folded. We were in the city, and now we are going home. One of the soldiers spoke into a mouthpiece. He clicked it off and put it away. Come with me, the later said. We're taking you in. Hurry along. In? Back to the city? One of the soldiers laughed. The city is gone, he said. All that's left of it you can put in the palm of your hand. But what happened? Mara said. No one knows. Come on. Hurry it up. There was a sound. A soldier came quickly out of the darkness. A senior later, he said. Coming this way. He disappeared again. A senior later. The soldiers stood, waiting, standing at respectful attention. A moment later the senior later stepped into the light, a black-clad old man, his ancient face thin and hard, like a bird's eyes, bright and alert. He looked from Eric to Jan. Who are these people? he demanded. Villagers, going back home. No, they're not. They don't stand like villagers. Villagers slump, diet, poor food. These people are not villagers. I myself came from the hills, and I know. He stepped close to Eric, looking keenly into his face. Who are you? Look at his chin. He's never shaved with a sharpened stone. Something is wrong here. In his hand a rod of pale fire flashed. The city is gone, and with it at least half the later council. It is very strange. A flash, then heat, and a wind. But it was not fission. I am puzzled. All at once the city has vanished. Nothing is left but a depression in the sand. We'll take them in, the other later said. Soldiers, surround them. Make certain that— Run! Eric cried. He struck out, knocking the rod from the senior later's hand. They were all running, soldiers shouting, flashing their lights, stumbling against each other in the darkness. Eric dropped to his knees, groping frantically in the bushes. His fingers closed over the handle of the case, and he leapt up. In Terran he shouted to Mara and Jan, Hurry! To the car! Run! He set off down the slope, stumbling through the darkness. He could hear soldiers behind him, soldiers running and falling. A body collided against him, and he struck out. Someplace behind him there was a hiss, and a section of the slope went up in flames. The later's rod. Eric! Mara cried from the darkness. He ran toward her. Suddenly he slipped, falling on a stone. Confusion and firing. The sound of excited voices. Eric! Is that you? Jan caught hold of him, helping him up. The car! It's over here! Where's Mara? I'm here! Mara's voice came. Over here, by the car! A light flashed. A tree went up in a puff of fire, and Eric felt the singe of the heat against his face. He and Jan made their way toward the girl. Mara's hand caught his in the darkness. Now the car, Eric said, if they haven't got to it. He slid down the slope into the ravine, fumbling in the darkness, reaching and holding onto the handle of the case, reaching, reaching. He touched something cold and smooth. Metal. A metal door handle. Relief flooded through him. I've found it, Jan. Get inside. Mara, come on. He pushed Jan past him into the car. Mara slipped in after Jan, her small, agile body crowding in beside him. Stop, a voice shouted from above. There's no use hiding in that ravine. We'll get you. Come up and— The sound of voices was drowned out by the roar of the car's motor. A moment later they shot into the darkness, the car rising into the air. Treetops broke and crackled under them as Eric turned the car from side to side, avoiding the groping shafts of pale light from below, the last furious thrusts from the two laders and their soldiers. Then they were away, above the trees, high in the air, gaining speed each moment, leaving the knot of Martians far behind. Toward Marsport, Jan said to Eric, right? Eric nodded. Yes, we'll land outside the field in the hills. We can change back to our regular clothing there, our commercial clothing. Damn it! We'll be lucky if we can get there in time for the ship. 
the last ship, Mara whispered, her chest rising and falling. What if we don't get there in time? Eric looked down at the leather case in his lap. We'll have to get there, he murmured. We must. For a long time there was silence. Thatcher stared at Erickson. The older man was leaning back in his chair, sipping a little of his drink. Mara and Jan were silent. So you didn't destroy the city, Thatcher said. You didn't destroy it at all. You shrank it down and put it in a glass globe in a paperweight. And now you're salesman again, with a sample case of office supplies. Erickson smiled. He opened the briefcase and reached into it. He brought out the glass globe paperweight. He held it up, looking into it. Yes, we stole the city from the Martians. That's how we got by the lie detector. It was true that we knew nothing about a destroyed city. But why, Thatcher said, why steal a city? Why not merely bomb it? Ransom, Mara said fervently, gazing into the globe, her dark eyes bright. Their biggest city, half of their council, in Eric's hand? Mars will have to do what Terra asks, Erickson said. Now Terra will be able to make her commercial demands felt. Maybe there won't even be a war. Perhaps Terra will get her way without fighting. Still smiling, he put the globe back into the briefcase and locked it. Quite a story, Thatcher said. What an amazing process. Reduction of size. A whole city reduced to microscopic dimensions. Amazing. No wonder you were able to escape. With such daring as that, no one could hope to stop you. He looked down at the briefcase on the floor. Underneath them the jets murmured and vibrated evenly as the ship moved through space toward distant Terra. We still have quite a way to go, Jan said. You've heard our story, Thatcher. Why not tell us yours? What sort of line are you in? What's your business? Yes, Mara said. What do you do? What do I do? Thatcher said. Well, if you like, I'll show you. He reached into his coat and brought out something. Something that flashed and glinted. Something slender. A rod of pale fire. The three stared at it. Sickened shock settled over them slowly. Thatcher held the rod loosely, calmly, pointing it at Erickson. We knew you three were on the ship, he said. There was no doubt of that. But we did not know what had become of the city. My theory was that the city had not been destroyed at all, that something else had happened to it. Council instruments measured a sudden loss of mass in that area, a decrease equal to the mass of the city. Somehow the city had been spirited away, not destroyed. But I could not convince the other council leaders of it. I had to follow you alone. Thatcher turned a little, nodding to the men sitting at the bar. The men rose at once, coming toward the table. A very interesting process you have. Mars will benefit a great deal from it. Perhaps it will even turn the tide in our favor. When we return to Marsport, I wish to begin work on it at once. And now, if you will, please pass me the briefcase. End of The Crystal Crypt by Philip K. Dick The Gift Bearer by Charles L. Fontenay. Read by Bologna Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Gift Bearer by Charles L. Fontenay. This could well have been Montcalm's greatest opportunity, a chance to bring mankind priceless gifts from worlds beyond. But Montcalm was a solid family man. It was one of those rare strokes of poetic something or other 
that the whole business occurred the morning after the stormy meeting of the Traskmore Censorship Board. Like the good general he was, Richard J. Montcalm had foreseen trouble at this meeting, for it was the boldest invasion yet into the territory of evil and laxity. His forces were marshaled. Several of the town's ministers, who had been with him on other issues, had balked on this one, but he had three of them present, as well as heads of several women's clubs. As he had anticipated, the irresponsible liberals were present to do battle, headed by red-headed Patrick Levitt. "'This board,' said Levitt, in his strong, sarcastic voice, "'has gone too far. It was all right to get rid of the actual filth.' and everyone will agree there was some. But when you ban the sale of some magazines and books because they had racy covers or because the contents were a little too sophisticated to suit the taste of members of this board, well, you can carry protection of our youth to the point of insulting the intelligence of adults who have a right to read what they want to. You're talking about something that's already in the past, Mr. Levitt said Montcalm mildly. Let's keep to the issue at hand. You won't deny that children see this indecent statue every day. No, I won't deny it, snapped Levitt. Why shouldn't they see it? They can see the plate of the original in the encyclopedia. It's a fine copy of a work of art. Montcalm waited for some rebuttal from his supporters, but none was forthcoming. On this matter, they apparently were unwilling to go farther than the moral backing of their presence. I do not consider the statue of a naked woman art, even if it is called Dawn, he said bitingly. He looked at his two colleagues and received their nods of acquiescence. He ruled, The statue must be removed from the park and from public view. Levitt had one parting shot. Would it solve the board's problem if we put a brassiere and panties on the statue? He demanded. Mr. Levitt's levity is not amusing. The board has ruled, said Montcalm coldly, arising to signify the end of the meeting. That night Montcalm slept the satisfied sleep of the just. He awoke shortly after dawn to find a strange, utterly beautiful, naked woman in his bedroom. For a bemused instant, Montcalm thought the statue of Dawn in the park had come to haunt him. His mouth fell open, but he was unable to speak. "'Take me to your president,' said the naked woman musically, with an accent that could have been Martian. Mrs. Montcalm awoke. "'What's that? What is it, Richard?' she asked sleepily. "'Don't look, Millie!' exclaimed Montcalm, clapping a hand over her eyes. "'Nonsense!' she snapped, pushing his hand aside and sitting up. She gasped, and her eyes went wide, and in an instinctive, unreasonable reaction she clutched the covers up around her own nightgowned bosom. "'Who are you, young woman?' demanded Montcalm indignantly. "'How did you get in here?' I am a visitor from what you would call an alien planet, she said. Of course, she added thoughtfully, 
It isn't alien to me. This woman's mad, said Montcalm to his wife. A warning sound sounded in the adjoining bedroom. Alarmed, he instructed, Go and keep the children out of here until I can get her to put on some clothes. They mustn't see her like this. Mrs. Montcalm got out of bed, but she gave her husband a searching glance. Are you sure I can trust you in here with her? she asked. Millie! exclaimed Montcalm sternly, shocked. She dropped her eyes and left the room. When the door closed behind her, he turned to the strange woman and said, Now look, young lady, I'll get you one of Millie's dresses. You'll have to get some clothes on and leave. Aren't you going to ask me my name? asked the woman. Of course, it's unpronounceable to you, but I thought that was the first thing all Earth people asked of visitors from other planets. All right, he said in exasperation. What's your name? She said an unpronounceable word and added, You may call me Liz. Montcalm went to the closet and found one of Millie's house dresses. He held it out to her beseechingly. As he did so, he was stricken with a sudden sharp feeling of regret that she must don it. Her figure. Why, Millie had never had a figure like that. At once he felt ashamed and disloyal and sterner than ever. Liz rejected the proffered garment. I wouldn't think of adopting your alien custom of wearing clothing, she said sweetly. Now look, said Montcalm. I don't know whether you're drunk or crazy, but you're going to have to put something on and get out of here before I call the police. I anticipated doubt, said Liz. I'm prepared to prove my identity. With the words, the two of them were no longer standing in the Montcalm bedroom, but in a broad expanse of green fields and woodland, unmarred by any habitation. Montcalm didn't recognize the spot, but it looked vaguely like it might be somewhere in the northern part of the state. Montcalm was dismayed to find that he was as naked as his companion. "'Oh, my lord!' he exclaimed, trying to cover himself with a September morn pose. "'Oh, I'm sorry,' apologized Liz, and instantly Montcalm's pajamas were lying at his feet. He got into them hurriedly. "'How did we get here?' he asked, his astonished curiosity overcoming his disapproval of this immodest woman. "'By a mode of transportation common to my people in planetary atmospheres,' she answered. "'It's one of the things I propose to teach your people.' She sat down cross-legged on the grass. Montcalm averted his eyes, like the gentleman he was. "'You see,' said Liz. The people of your world are on the verge of going to space and joining the community of worlds. It's only natural the rest of us should wish to help you. We have a good many things to give you, to help you control the elements and natural conditions of your world. The weather, for example. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a small cloud appeared above them and spread, blocking out the early sun. It began to rain, hard. The rain stopped as suddenly as it had begun, and the cloud dissipated. Montcalm stood shivering in his soaked pajamas, 
and Liz got to her feet, her skin glistening with moisture. You have a problem raising food for your population in some areas, she said. A small haw apple tree near them suddenly began to grow at an amazing rate of speed. It doubled its size in three minutes, put forth fruit, and dropped it to the ground. These are only a few of the things I'll give to your planet, she said. At her words, they were back in the bedroom. This time she had been thoughtful. Montcalm was still clad in wet pajamas. "'I don't know what sort of hypnosis this is,' he began aggressively. "'But you can't fool me, young lady, into believing—' Millie came into the room. She had donned a robe over her nightgown. "'Richard, where have you been with this woman?' she demanded. "'Why, my dear—' "'You've been roaming around the house somewhere with her. I came in here a moment ago and you were gone.' Now, Richard, I want you to do something about her and stop fooling around. I can't keep the children in their room all day. It hadn't been hypnosis, then. Liz was for real. A vision rose before Montcalm of mankind given wonders, powers, benefits, representing advances of thousands of years. The world could become a paradise with the things she offered to teach. Millie, this woman is from another planet! he exclaimed excitedly, and turned to Liz. Why did you choose me to contact on Earth? Why, I happened to land near your house, she answered. I know how your primitive social organization is set up, but isn't one human being just as good as another to lead me to the proper authorities? Yes, he said joyfully, visualizing black headlines in his picture in the papers. Millie stood to one side puzzled and grim at once. Montcalm picked up the house-dress he had taken from the closet earlier. "'Now, miss,' he said, "'if you'll just put this on, I'll take you to the mayor, and he can get in touch with Washington at once.' "'I told you,' said Liz, "'I don't want to adopt your custom of wearing clothing.' "'But you can't go out in public like that,' said the dismayed Montcalm. If you're going to move among Earth people, you must dress as we do. My people wouldn't demand that Earth people disrobe to associate with us, she countered reasonably. Millie had had enough. She went into action. You can argue with this hussy all you like, Richard, but I'm going to call the police, she said, and left the room with determination in her eye. The next fifteen minutes were agonizing for Montcalm, as he tried futilely to get Liz to dress like a decent person. He was torn between realization of what the things she offered would mean to the world, and his own sense of the fitness of things. His children, the children of Traskmore, the children of the world! What would be the effect on their tender morals to realize that a sane adult was willing to walk around in brazen nakedness? There was a pounding on the front door, and the voice of Millie inviting the law into the house. "'Now I'm afraid you're due to go to jail,' said Montcalm mournfully. "'But when they get some clothes on you, I'll try to explain it and get you an audience with the mayor.' Two blue-clad policemen entered the room. One policeman took the house-dress from Montcalm's lax fingers and tossed it over Liz's head without further ado. Liz did not struggle. She looked at Montcalm with a quizzical expression. 
"'I'm sorry,' she said. "'My people made a mistake. "'If you earth people aren't tolerant enough "'to accept a difference in customs of dress, "'I'm afraid you're too immature.' "'With that, she was gone like a puff of air. "'The astonished policeman held an empty dress.' Montcalm didn't see the flying saucer that whizzed over Trasmore that morning and disappeared into the sky, but he didn't doubt the reports. He debated with himself for a long time whether he had taken the right attitude, but decided he had. After all, there were the children to consider. End of The Gift-Bearer by Charles L. Fontenay Out of this world convention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Nagy. Out of this world convention by Forrest James Ackerman. I was a spy for the FBI, the Fantasy Bureau of Investigation. Learning of a monster meeting of science fiction fen in New York. I teleported myself 3,000 miles from the Pacific coast to check the facts on the monsters. And it was true. The 14th World Sci-Fi Con was tremendous. In all seriousness, the New York Con was one of the greatest aggregations of sci-fi enthusiasts I've ever seen. A far cry from the Nikon, the first World Sci-Fi Con of 17 years before, when the turnout of 125 was considered colossal. Now, more than 1,200 fans, authors, editors, artists publishers, agents, anthologists, reviewers and readers of science fiction and fantasy registered for the Labor Day weekend. It was a gathering of the clans, a conclave of the slans. From 37 of the 48 states they came, and from Canada, Cuba, England, Germany, India, Israel, and the West Indies. The roll call of celebrities read like the who's who of sci-fi prodom. Theodore Sturgeon, Isaac Asimov, Fritz Lieber, Willie Lay, Nelson Bond, John W. Campbell Jr., L. Sprague de Camp, James Blish, Judith Merrill, Ted Carnell, editor of New Worlds, Kelly Frias, Edmund Hamilton, Leigh Brackett, Anthony Boucher, William Ten, James E. Gunn, Frank Belknap Long Jr., and numerous others, including guest of honor Arthur C. Clarke. A standing ovation was given Arthur Clarke before and after his speech at the banquet, a serious address that lasted 45 minutes and covered many philosophical facets of the sci-fi field. Especially rousing hands were given two of the real old-timers present, artist Frank R. Paul, guest of honor of the first convention, and, out of the ark, the man who once was an assistant to Thomas Alva Edison, the pioneer novelist of scientific romances and the man who discovered the golden atom. Ray Cummings. World-famous cartoonist Al Cap gave a hilarious speech at the banquet Sunday night, other large laughs being garnered on the occasion by Isaac Asimov and Anthony Boucher, Robert Bloch again proving that he has no peer as a master of ceremonies. The masquerade ball was filmed for televising. It was a sight for bugging eyes. Extraterrestrial glamour girls came in spectrumatic colors. One, Ruth Landis of Venus, formerly New York, was a verdant beauty, fresh as a breath of chlorophyll, while tall Tam Otison, a recent import from England, had the judges agreeing that just looking at her was an education. 
Olga Ley won for the most beautiful costume, and Joss Kristoff, a survivor from the first convention of them all, was another prize winner. Monsters, mutants, scientists, spacemen, aliens, and assorted things thronged the ballroom floor as the flashbulbs popped. John Campbell lectured on and demonstrated his controversial psionic Hieronymus machine, and famous fans sprang from Der, Der Woodwork, out Sam Maskowitz, James Tarasi, Bob Tucker, Julius Unger, Raymond Van Houten, Alan Glasser, and on and on. David Kyle, E.E. E. Evans, James Tarasi, myself, and two others were elected directors of the World Science Fiction Society. No account of the New York Con could be complete without a deep bow of appreciation to the altruistic trio of committeemen, including one comely woman, who all but destroyed themselves engineering the convention, David A. Kyle, Ruth Landis, and Dick Ellington. By a vote of 3 to 1, London was selected as the site of the 15th Con, to be held in 57. For an unforgettable experience in the fantastic universe of science fiction enthusiasts, plan now to attend the Lawn Con. End of Out of This World Convention by Forrest James Ackerman Recording by Joseph Nagy of josephnagy.com That's J-O-Z-E-F-N-A-G-Y dot com This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dana Allen A Scientist Rises by Desmond Winter Hall On that summer day, the sky over New York was unflecked by clouds, and the air hung motionless, the waves of heat undisturbed. The city was a vast oven where even the sounds of the coiling traffic in its streets seemed heavy and weary under the press of heat that poured down from above. In Washington Square, the urchins of the neighborhood splashed in the fountain, and the usual midday assortment of mothers, tramps, and out-of-works lounged, listlessly, on the hot park benches. As a bowl, the square was filled by the torrid sun, and the trees and grass drooped like the people on its walks. In the surrounding city, men worked in sweltering offices, and the streets rumbled with the never-ceasing tide of business, but Washington Square rested. And then a man walked out of one of the houses lining the square, and all this was changed. He came with a calm, steady stride down the steps of a house on the north side, and those who happened to see him gazed with surprised interest, for he was giant in size. He measured at least eleven feet in height, and his body was well-formed and in perfect proportion. He crossed the street and stepped over the railing into the nearest patch of grass, and there stood with arms folded and legs a little apart. The expression on his face was preoccupied and strangely apart, nor did it change when, almost immediately from the park bench nearest him, a woman's excited voice cried, "'Look! Look!' Oh, look! The people around her craned their necks and stared, and from them grew a startled murmur. Others from far away came to see who had cried out, and remained to gaze fascinated at the man on the grass. Quickly the murmur spread across the square, and from its every part men and women and children streamed towards the center of interest, and then, 
when they saw, backed away slowly and fearfully, with staring eyes, from where the lone figure stood. There was about that figure something uncanny and terrible. There, in the hot midday hush, something was happening to it, which men would say could not happen, and men, seeing it, backed away in alarm. Quickly they dispersed. Soon there were only white, frightened faces peering from behind buildings and trees. Before their very eyes, the giant was growing. When he had first emerged, he had been around eleven feet tall, and now, within three minutes, he had risen close to sixteen feet. His great body maintained its perfect proportions. It was that of an elderly man clad simply in a gray business suit. The face was kind, its clear chiseled features indicating fine spiritual strength. On the white forehead beneath the sparse gray hair were deep sunken lines which spoke of years of concentrated work. No thought of malevolence could come from that head with its gentle blue eyes that showed the peace within. But fear struck ever stronger into those who watched him, and in one place a woman fainted, for the great body continued to grow, and grow ever faster, until it was twenty feet high, then swiftly twenty-five, and the feet, still separated, were as long as the body of a normal boy. Clothes and body grew effortlessly, the latter apparently without pain, as if the terrifying process were wholly natural. The cars coming into Washington Square had stopped as their drivers sighted what was rising there, and by now the bordering streets were tangled with traffic. A distant crowd of milling people heightened the turmoil. The northern edge was deserted, but in a large semicircle was spread a fear-struck, panicky mob. A single policeman, his face white and his eyes wide, tried to straighten out the tangle of vehicles, but it was infinitely beyond him and he sent in a riot call, and as the giant with the kind, dignified face loomed silently higher than the trees in the square, and ever higher, a dozen blue-coated figures appeared, and saw, and knew fear too, and hung back, awe-stricken, at a loss what to do, for by now the rapidly mounting body had risen to the height of forty feet. An excited voice raised itself above the general hubbub. Why, I know him. I know him. It's Edgar Wesley, Dr. Edgar Wesley. A police sergeant turned to the man who had spoken. And it, he, knows you? Then go closer to him and, and ask him what it means. But the man looked fearfully at the giant and hung back. Even as they talked, his gigantic body had grown as high as the four-storied buildings lining the square, and his feet were becoming too large for the place where they had first been put. And now a faint smile could be seen on the giant's face, an enigmatic smile with something ironic and bitter in it. "'Then shout to him from here,' pressed the sergeant nervously. "'We've got to find out something. This is crazy, impossible, my God, higher yet, and faster!' Summoning his courage, the other man cupped his hands about his mouth and shouted, "'Dr. Wesley, can you speak and tell us? Can we help you stop it?' The ring of people looked up breathless at the towering figure, 
and a wave of fear passed over them, and several hysterical shrieks rose up, as, very slowly, the huge head shook from side to side. But the smile on its lips became stronger and kinder, and the bitterness seemed to leave it. There was fear at that motion of the enormous head, but a roar of panic sounded from the watchers when, with marked caution, the growing giant moved one foot from the grass into the street behind, and the other into the nearby base of Fifth Avenue, just above the arch. Fearing harm, they were gripped by terror, and they fought back while the trembling policemen tried vainly to control them. But the panic soon ended when they saw that the leviathan's arms remained crossed, and his smile kinder yet. By now he dwarfed the houses, his body looming a hundred and fifty feet into the sky. At this moment, a woman back of the semicircle slumped to her knees and prayed hysterically. "'Someone's coming out of his house!' shouted one of the closest onlookers. The door of the house from which the giant had first appeared had opened, and the figure of a middle-aged, normal-sized man emerged. For a second he crouched on the steps, gaping up at the monstrous shape in the sky, and then he scurried down and made at a desperate run for the nearest group of policemen. He gripped the sergeant and cried frantically, "'That's Dr. Wesley! Why don't you do something? Why don't—' "'Who are you?' the officer asked, with some return of an authoritative manner. "'I work for him. I'm his janitor, but can't you do anything? Look at him! Look!' The crowd pressed closer. "'What do you know about this?' went on the sergeant. The man gulped and stared around wildly. "'He's been working on something many years. I don't know what, for he kept it a close secret. All I knew is that an hour ago I was in my room upstairs when I heard some disturbance in his laboratory on the ground floor. I came down and knocked on the door, and he answered from inside and said that everything was all right. You didn't go in? No, I went back up and everything was quiet for a long time. Then I heard a lot of noise down below, a smashing, as if things were being broken, but I thought he was just destroying something he didn't need, and I didn't investigate. He hated to be disturbed, and then a little later I heard them shouting out here in the square, and I looked out and saw, I saw him, just as I knew him, but a giant! Look at his face! Why, he has the face of of a god. He's as if he were looking down on us and pitying us. For a moment all were silent as they gazed, transfixed, at the vast form that towered two hundred feet above them. Almost as awe-inspiring as the astounding growth was the fine, dignified calmness of the face. The sergeant broke in. The explanation of this must be in his laboratory. We've got to have a look. You lead us there. The other man nodded, but just then the giant moved again, and they waited and watched. With the utmost caution the titanic shape changed position. Gradually one great foot, over thirty feet in length, soared up from the street and lowered farther away, and then the other distant foot changed its position and the leviathan came gently to rest against the tallest building bordering the square, and once more folded his arms and stood quiet. The enormous body appeared to waver slightly 
as a breath of wind washed against it. Obviously, it was not gaining weight as it grew. Almost now, it appeared to float in the air. Swiftly, it grew another twenty-five feet, and the gray expanse of its clothes shimmered strangely as a ripple ran over its colossal bulk. A change of feeling came gradually over the watching multitude. The face of the giant was indeed that of a god in the noble, irony-tinged serenity of his calm features. It was as if a further world had opened and one of divinity had stepped down, a further world of kindness and fellow-love where were none of the discords that bring conflicts and slaughterings to the weary people of earth. Spiritual peace radiated from the enormous face under the silvery hair, peace with an undertone of sadness, as if the giant knew of the sorrows of the swarm of dwarfs beneath him, and pitied them. From all the roofs and towers of the city, for miles and miles around, men saw the mammoth shape and the kindly smile grow more and more tenuous against the clear blue sky. The figure remained quietly in the same position, his feet filling two empty streets, and under the spell of his smile all fear seemed to leave the nearer watchers, and they became more quiet and controlled. The group of policemen and the janitor made a dash for the house from which the giant had come. They ascended the steps, went in, and found the door of the laboratory locked. They broke the door down. The sergeant looked in. "'Anyone in here?' he cried. Nothing disturbed the silence, and he entered, the others following. A long, wide, dimly lit room met their eyes, and in its middle the remains of a great mass of apparatus that had dominated it. The apparatus was now completely destroyed. Its dozen rows of tubes were shattered, its intricate coils of wire and machinery hopelessly smashed. Fragments lay scattered all over the floor. No longer was there the least shape of meaning to anything in the room. There remained merely a litter of glass and stone and scrap metal. Conspicuous on the floor was a large hammer. The sergeant walked over to pick it up, but instead paused and stared at what lay beyond it. A body, he said. A sprawled out dead man lay on the floor, his dark face twisted up, his sightless eyes staring at the ceiling, his temple crushed as with a hammer. Clutched tight in one stiff hand was an automatic. On his chest was a sheet of paper. The captain reached down and grasped the paper. He read what was written on it, and then he read it to the others. There was a fool who dreamed the high dream of the pure scientist, and who lived only to ferret out the secrets of nature and harness them for his fellow men. He studied and worked and thought, and in time came to concentrate on the manipulation of the atom, especially the possibility of contracting and expanding it, a thing of greatest potential value. For nine years he worked along this line, hoping to succeed and give new power, new happiness, a new horizon to mankind. Hermetically sealed in his laboratory, self-exiled from human contacts, he labored hard. There came a day when the device into which the fool had poured his life stood completed and a success, and on that very day an agent for a certain government entered his laboratory to steal the device. And in that moment the fool realized what he had done, that from the apparatus he had invented, not happiness and new freedom would come to his fellow men, 
but instead slaughter and carnage and drunken power increased a hundredfold. He realized, suddenly, that men had not yet learned to use fruitfully the precious powerful things given to them, but as yet could only play with them like greedy children, and kill as they played. Already his invention had brought death, and he realized, even on this day of his triumph, that it and its secret must be destroyed, and with them he who had fashioned so blindly. For the scientist was old, his whole life was the invention, and with its going there would be nothing more. And so he used the device's great powers on his own body, and then, with those powers working on him, he destroyed the device and all the papers that held its secrets. Was the fool also mad? Perhaps, but I do not think so. In his lonely laboratory, with this marauder, had come the wisdom that men must wait, that the time is not yet for such power as he was about to offer. A gesture, his strange death, which you who read this have seen? Yes, but a useful one, for with it he and his invention and its hurtful secrets go from you, and a fitting one, for he dies through his achievement, through his very life. But, in a better sense, he will not die, for the power of his achievement will dissolve his very body among you infinitely. You will breathe him in your air, and in you he will live incarnate until that later time when another will give you the knowledge he now destroys, and he will see it used as he wished it used. E. W. The sergeant's voice ceased, and wordlessly the men in the laboratory looked at each other. No comment was needed. They went out. They watched from the steps of Edgar Wesley's house. At first sight of the figure in the sky, a new awe struck them, for now the shape of the giant towered a full five hundred feet into the sun, and it seemed almost a mirage, for definite outline was gone from it. It shimmered and wavered against the bright blue like a mist, and the blue shone through it, for it was quite transparent. And yet still they imagined they could discern the slight ironic smile on the face, and the peaceful understanding light in the serene eyes, and their hearts swelled at the knowledge of the spirit, of the courage, of the fine far-seeing mind of that outflung titanic martyr to the happiness of men. The end came quickly. The great misty body rose, it floated over the city like a wraith, and then it swiftly dispersed, even as steam dissolves in the air. They felt a silence over the thousands of watching people in the square, a hush broken at last by a deep, low murmur of awe and wonderment, as the final misty fragments of the vast sky-held figure wavered and melted imperceptibly, melted and were gone from sight in the air that was breathed by the men whom Edgar Wesley loved. End of A Scientist Rises by Desmond Winter Hall Texas Week by Albert Hemoter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bologna Times. Texas Week by Albert Hemoter. 
One of the chief purposes of psychiatry is to separate fantasy from reality. It is reasonable to expect that future psychiatrists will know more about this borderline than the most learned doctors of today, yet now and again even the best of them may encounter situations that defy all logic. Meeting the little man who isn't there is rated an horrendous experience, but discovery that the man is there may be even worse. The slick black car sped along the wide and straight street. It came to a smooth stop in front of a clean white house. A man got out of the car and walked briskly to the door. Reaching out with a pink hand, he pressed the doorbell with one well-manicured finger. The door was answered by a housewife. She was wearing a white blouse, a green skirt, and a green apron trimmed with white. Her feet were tucked into orange slippers. Her blonde hair was done up in a neat bun. She was dressed as the government had ordered for that week. The man said, You are Mrs. Christopher Nest? There was a trace of anxiety in her voice as she answered, Yes, and you are? My name is Maxwell Hanstark. As you may already know, I am the official psychiatrist for this district. My appointment will last until the end of this year. Mrs. Nest invited him in. They stepped into a clean living room. At one end was the television set. At the other end were several chairs. There was nothing between the set and the chairs except a large gray rug, which stretched from wall to wall. They walked to the chairs and sat down. Now, just what is the matter with your husband, Mrs. Nest? Mrs. Nest reached into a large bowl and absently picked up a piece of stale popcorn. She daintily placed it in her mouth and chewed thoughtfully before she answered. I wish I knew. All he does all day long is sit in the backyard and stare at the grass. He insists that he's standing on top of a cliff. Hanstark took out a small pad and a short ballpoint pen. He wrote something down before he spoke again. Is he violent? Did he get angry when you told him there was no cliff? Mrs. Nest was silent for a moment. A second piece of popcorn joined the first. Hanstark's pen was poised above the pad. No, he didn't get violent. Hanstark wrote as he asked the next question. Just what was his reaction? He said, I must be crazy. Were those his exact words? No, he said that I was, she thought for a moment, loco. Yes, that was the word. Loco? Yes, he said it just like those cowboys on the television. Hanstark looked puzzled. Perhaps you had better tell me more about this. When did he first start acting this way? Mrs. Nest glanced up at the television set, then back at Hanstark. It was right after Texas week. You remember, they showed all of those old cowboy pictures? Hanstark nodded. Well, he stayed up every night watching them. 
Some nights he didn't even go to sleep. Even after the set was off, he sat in one of the chairs just staring at the screen. This morning when I got up, he wasn't in the house. I looked all over, but I couldn't find him. I was just about ready to phone the police when I glanced out the window into the backyard, and I saw him. What was he doing? He was just sitting there in the middle of the yard, staring. I went out and tried to bring him into the house. He told me he had to watch for someone. When I asked him what he was talking about, he told me that I was crazy. That was when I phoned you, Mr. Hanstark. A very wise move, Mrs. Nest. And would you show me where your husband is right now? She nodded her head, and they both got up from the chairs. They walked through the dining room and kitchen. On the back porch, Hanstark came to a halt. You'd better stay here, Mrs. Nest. He walked to the door and opened it. Mr. Hanstark, Mrs. Nest called. Hanstark turned and saw her standing next to the automatic washing machine. Yes? Please be careful. Hanstark smiled. I shall be, Mrs. Nest. He walked out the door and down three concrete steps. Looking a little to his right, he saw a man squatted on his heels. He walked up to the man. You are Mr. Christopher Nest? The man looked up and stared for a moment at Hanstark. Yep, he answered. Then he turned and stared at the grass again. And may I ask what you are doing? Nest answered without looking up. Garden the pass? Hanstark scribbled something in his notebook. And why are you guarding the pass? Nest rose to his feet and stared down at Hanstark. Just what are you asking all these questions for, stranger? Hanstark saw Nest was bigger than he, and decided to play along for a while. After all, strategy. I'm just interested in your welfare, Mr. Nest. Nest shrugged his shoulders. He reached into his shirt pocket and pulled out a sack of tobacco and some paper. Holding a piece of paper in one hand, he carefully poured a little tobacco onto it. In one quick movement, he rolled the paper and tobacco into a perfect cylinder. He put the sack of tobacco and paper back into his pocket and took out a wooden kitchen match. He scraped it to life on the sole of his shoe and applied the flame to the tip of the cigarette. He puffed it into life and threw the match away. It burned for a few moments in the moist grass, then went out. A thin trail of smoke rose from it, and then it was gone. Why are you guarding the pass? Hanstark asked again. Nest resumed his crouch on the grass. News is around that Dirty Dan the cattle rustler is going to try to steal some of my cattle. He patted an imaginary holster at his side and I aim to stop him. Hanstark thought for a moment. Strategy. He must use strategy. Mr. Nest. He waited until Nest had turned to him. Mr. Nest, what would you say if I told you that there was no pass down there? Why, shucks, partner. I'd say you'd been chewing some local weed. 
And if I could prove it? Nest answered after a moment's pause. Why, then, I guess I'd be loco. Hanstark thought it was going to be easy. Mr. Nest, it is a well-known fact that no one can walk in mid-air. Is that not true? Nest took a deep drag on his cigarette and blew the smoke out of his nostrils. Sure. Then, if I were to walk out above your pass, you'd have to admit there is no pass. Reckon so. Hanstark began to walk in the direction of Nest's cliff. Nest jumped to his feet and grabbed the official psychiatrist by the arm. What are you trying to do? Nest said angrily. Kill yourself? Hanstark shook free of his grasp. Mr. Nest, I am not going to kill myself. I am merely going to walk in that direction. He pointed to where the cliff was supposed to be. To you it will look as if I were walking in mid-air. Nest dropped his hands to his sides. Shucks, I don't care if you kill yourself. It's just that it's liable to make the cattle nervous. Hanstark gave him a cold glare and began to walk. He took three paces and stopped. You see, Mr. Nest, there is no cliff. Nest looked at him and laughed. You just take one more step and you'll find out there is a cliff. Hanstark took another step. A long one. His face bore a surprised look as he disappeared beneath the grass. His screams could be heard for a moment before he landed on the rocks below. Nest walked to the edge of the cliff and looked down at the mangled body. He took off his hat in respect. Little feller had a lot of guts. Then he added, Poor little feller. He put his hat back on and looked down at the entrance to the valley. A horse and rider appeared from behind several rocks. Dirty Dan! Nest exclaimed. He reached down and picked up his rifle. End of Texas Week by Albert Hemhoter Year of the Big Thaw This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Greg Weeks Year of the Big Thaw by Marion Zimmer Bradley Mr. Emmett did his duty by the visitor from another world, never doubting the right of it. In this warm and fanciful story of a Connecticut farmer, Marion Zimmer Bradley has caught some of the glory that is man's love for man, no matter who he is, nor whence he's from. By heck, you'll like little Matt. You say that Matthew is your own son, Mr. Emmett? Yes, Reverend Doan, and a better boy never stepped, if I do say as shouldn't. I've trusted him to drive team for me since he was eleven, and you can't say more than that for a farm boy. Way back when he was a little shaver so high, when the war came on, he was boundin he was going to sail with this Admiral Farragut, you know boys that age, like runaway colts. 
I couldn't see no good in his being cabin boy on some tarnation navy ship, and I told him so. If he'd wanted to sail out on a whaling ship, I low I'd have let him go. But Marthy, that's the boy's ma, took on so that Matt stayed home. Yes, he's a good boy and a good son. We'll miss him a powerful lot if he gets this scholarship thing, but I low it'll be good for the boy to get some learning besides what he gets in the school here. It's right kind of you, Reverend, to look over this application thing for me. Well, if he is your own son, Mr. Emmett, why did you write birthplace unknown on the line here? Reverend Doan, I'm glad you asked me that question. I've been turning it over in my mind, and I've just about come to the conclusion it wouldn't be no-how fair to hold it back. I didn't lie when I said Matt was my son, because he's been a good son to me and Marthy, but I'm not his pa and Marthy ain't his ma, so could be I stretched the truth just a mite. Reverend Doan, it's a tarnal funny yarn, but I'll walk into the meetin' house and swear to it on a stack of Bibles as thick as a cord of wood. You know I've been farming the old corning place these past seven year. It's good flat Connecticut bottom land, but it isn't like our land up in Hampshire where I was born and raised. My pa called it the Hampshire Grants, and all that was King's Land when his pa came in there and started farming at the foot of the Scuttock Mountain. That's engine for fires, folks say, because the engines used to build fires up there in the spring for some of their heath and doodads. Anyhow, up there in the mountains we see eternal power aquare things. You call to mind the year we had the big thaw about twelve years before the war? You mind the blizzard that year? I heard tell it spread down most to York, and at Fort Orange, the place they call Albany now, the Hudson froze right over, so they say. But those York folks do a sight of exaggerating, I'm told. Anyhow, when the ice went out, there was an almighty good thaw all over, and when the snow run off Scuttock Mountain, there was a good-sized hunk of farmland in our valley went under water. The crick on my farm flowed over the bank, and there was a foot of water in the cow shed, and down in the swimming hole in the back pasture wasn't nothing but a big gully fifty foot and more across, rushing through the pasture, deep as a lake, and brown as the old cow. You know fresh at floods? full up with sticks and stones and old dead trees and somebody's old shed floating down the middle. And I swear to goodness, Parson, that stream was running along so fast I saw four-inch cobblestones floating and bumping along. I tied the cow and the calf and Kate. She was our white mare. You mind she went lame last year and I had to shoot her, but she was just a young mare then and skittish as all get out, but she was a good little mare. Anyhow, I tied the whole kit and caboodle of them in the woodshed up behind the house, where they'd be dry. Then I started to get the milk pail. Right then I heard the gosh-awfulish screech I ever heard in my life. Sounded like thunder and a freshet and a forest fire all at once. I dropped the milk pail as I heard Marthy scream inside the house, and I run outside. Marthy was already there in the yard, and she points up in the sky and yelled, Look up yander! We stood looking up at the sky over Shattuck Mountain, where there was a great big chute now, I don't know as I can call its name, but it was like a trail of fire in the sky, and it was making the dangdest racket you ever heard, Reverend. Looked kind of like one of them Fourth of July sky rockets, but it was big as a house. 
Marthy was screaming, and she grabbed me and hollered, Hez, Hez, what in Tunket is it? And when Marthy cusses like that, Reverend, she don't know what she's saying, she's so scared. I was plumb scared myself. I heard Lisa, that's our young'un, Lisa Grace, that got married to the tailor boy. I heard her crying on the stoop, and she came flying out with her penny all black and hollering to Marthy that the pea soup was burning. Marthy let out another screech and ran for the house. That's a woman for you. So I quieted Lisa down some, and I went in and told Marthy it weren't no more than one of them shooting stars. Then I went and did the milking. But you know, while we were sitting down to supper, there came the most awful grinding, screeching, pounding crash I ever heard. Sounded if it were in the back pasture, but the house shook as if something had hit it. Marthy jumped a mile, and I never saw such a look on her face. Hez, what was that? she asked. Shoot now, nothing but the freshet, I told her. But she kept on about it. You reckon that shooting star fell in our back pasture, Hez? Well now, I don't low it did, nothing like that, I told her. But she was jittery as an old hen, and it weren't like her know-how. She said it sounded like trouble, and I finally quieted her down by saying I'd saddle Kate up and go have a look. I kind of thought, though, I didn't tell Marthy that somebody's house had floated away in the freshet and run aground in our back pasture. So I saddled up Kate and told Marthy to get some hot rum ready in case there was some poor soul run aground back there, and I rode Kate back to the back pasture. It was mostly uphill because the top of the pasture is on high ground, and it sloped down to the crick on the other side of the rise. Well, I reached the top of the hill and looked down. The crick were a regular river now, rushing along like Niagara. On the other side of it was a stand of timber, then the slope of Shattuck Mountain, and I saw right away the long streak where all the timber had been cut out in a big scoop, with roots standing up in the air, and a big slide of rocks down to the water. It was still raining a mite, and the ground was sloshy and squanchy underfoot. Kate scrunched her hooves and got real balky, not liking it a bit. When we got to the top of the pasture, she started to whine and wicker and stamp, and no matter how loud I woed, she kept on a-stampin', and I was plumb scared she'd pitch me off in the mud. Then I started to smell a funny smell, like something burnin'. Now don't ask me how anything could burn in all that water, because I don't know. When we came up on the rise, I saw the contraption. Reverend, it was the most tarnal crazy contraption I ever saw in my life. It was bigger nor my cowshed, and it was long and thin and shiny as Marthy's old pewter pitcher her ma brought from England. It had a pair of red rods sticking out behind, and a crazy globe fitted up where the top ought to be. It was stuck in the mud, turned halfway over on the little slide of roots and rocks, and I could see what had happened all right. The thing must have been, now, Reverend, you can say what you like, but that thing must have flew across Shattuck and landed on the slope in the trees, then turned over and slid down the hill. That must have been the crash we heard. The rods weren't just red, they were red-hot. I could hear them sizzle as the rain hit them. In the middle of the infernal contraption there was a door, and it hung all to other as if every hinge on it had been wrenched halfway off. As I pushed old Kate alongside it, I heard somebody hollering alongside the contraption. 
I didn't know how get the words, but it must have been for help, because I looked down and there was a man flopping along in the water. He was a big fellow, and he wasn't swimming, just thrashing and hollering. So I pulled off my coat and boots and hove in after him. The stream was running fast, but he was near the edge, and I managed to catch on to an old tree root and hang on, keeping his head out of the water till I got my feet aground. Then I hauled him onto the bank. Up above me, Kate was still whinnying and raising Ned, and I shouted at her as I bent over the man. Well, Reverend, he sure did give me a surprise. Weren't no proper man I'd ever seed before. He was wearing some kind of red clothes, real shiny and sort of stretchy, and not wet from the water like you'd expect, but dry, and it felt like that silk and India rubber stuff mixed together. And it was such a bright red that at first I didn't see the blood on it. When I did, I knew he were a goner. His chest were all stove in, smashed to pieces. One of the old tree roots must have jabbed him as the current flung him down. I thought he were dead already, but then he opened up his eyes. A funny color they were, greeny-yellow, and I swear, Reverend, when he opened them eyes, I felt he was reading my mind. I thought maybe he might be one of them circus fellers in their flying contraptions that hung on at the bottom of a balloon. He spoke to me in English, kind of choky and stiff, not like Joe the Portagey sailor, or like those tarnal dumb Frenchies up Canadian way, but, well, funny. He said, My baby, in ship, get baby. He tried to say more, but his eyes went shut and he moaned hard. I yelped, God Almighty! Excuse me, Reverend, but I was so blame upset that's just what I did say. God Almighty, man, you mean there's a baby in that there dingful contraption? He just moaned, so after spreading my coat around the man a little bit, I just plunged in that there river again. Reverend, I heard tell once about some tomful idiot going over Niagara in a barrel, and I tell you it was like that when I tried crossing that freshet to reach the contraption. I went under and down and was whacked by floating sticks and whirled around in the freshet. But somehow, I don't know how, except by the pure grace of God, I got across that raging torrent and clumb up to where the crazy dingful machine was sitting. Ship, he'd called it, but that were no ship, reverend. It was some flying dragon kind of thing. It was a real scary looking thing, but I clumb up to the little door and hauled myself in, and sure enough, there was other people in the cabin, only they was all dead. There was a lady and a man and some kind of an animal, looked like a bobcat only smaller, with a funny-shaped rooster comb along its head. They all, even the cat thing, was wearing those shiny, stretchy clothes. And they was all so battered and smashed, I didn't even bother to hunt for their heartbeats. I could see by a look that they was dead as a doornail. Then I heard a funny little whimpering like a kitten, and in a funny rubber-cushioned thing there's a little boy baby, looked about six months old. He was howling lusty enough, and when I lifted him out of the cradle kind of thing, I saw why. That boy baby, he was wet, and his little arm was twisted under him. That there flying contraption must have smashed down awful hard, but that rubber hammock was so soft and cushiony all it did to him was jolt him good. I looked around, but I couldn't find anything to wrap him in, and the baby didn't have a stitch on him except a sort of a spongy paper diaper wet as sin. So I finally lifted up the lady, 
who had a long cape thing around her and took the cape off her real gentle. I knew she was dead and she wouldn't be needing it, and that baby boy would catch his death if I took him out bare naked like that. She was probably the baby's ma. A right pretty woman she was, but smashed up something shameful. So anyhow, to make a long story short, I got that baby boil back across that Niagara Falls somehow and laid him down by his paw. The man opened his eyes kind and said in a choky voice, Take care, baby. I told him I would and said I'd try to get him up to the house where Marthy could doctor him. The man told me not to bother. I dying, he says. We come from planet, star up there, crash here. His voice trailed off into a language I couldn't understand, and he looked like he was praying. I bent over him and held his head on my knees real easy, and I said, Don't worry, mister. I'll take care of your little fellow until your folks come after him. Before God I will. So the man closed his eyes, and I said, Our Father, which art in heaven, and when I got through he was dead. I got him up on Kate but he was cruel heavy for all he was such a tall skinny fellow. Then I wrapped that there baby up in the cape thing and took him home and give him to Marthy. And the next day I buried the fellow in the South Meadow, and next meeting day we had the baby baptized Matthew Daniel Emmett and brung him up just like our own kids. That's all. All, Mr. Emmett, didn't you ever find out where that ship really came from? Why, Reverend, he said it came from a star. Dying men don't lie, you know that. I asked the teacher about them planets he mentioned, and she says that on one of the planets, can't rightly remember the name, March or Mark or something like that, she says some big scientist feller with a telescope saw canals on that planet, and they'd have to be pretty near as big as this here Erie Canal to see them so far off. And if they could build canals on that planet, I don't know why they couldn't build a flying machine. I went back the next day when the water was down a little to see if I couldn't get the rest of them folks and bury them, but the flying machine had broke up and washed down the creek. Marthy's still got the cape thing. She's a powerful saving woman. We never did tell Matt, though. Might make him feel funny to think he didn't really belong to us. But, but, Mr. Emmett, didn't anybody ask questions about the baby, where you got it? Well, now... Although they was curious because Marthy hadn't been in the family way and they knew it, but up here folks minds their own business pretty well, and I just let them wonder. I told Lisa Grace I'd found her new little brother in the back pasture, and of course it was the truth. When Lisa Grace growed up, she thought it was just one of those yarns old folks tell the little shavers. And has Matthew ever shown any differences from the other children that you could see? Well, Reverend, not so's you could notice it. He's powerful smart, but his real pa and ma must have been right smart too to build a flying contraption that could come so far. Of course, when he was about twelve years old, he started reading folks' minds, which didn't seem exactly right. He'd tell Marthy what I was thinking and things like that. He was just at the pesky age. Lisa Grace and Minnie were both a courtin' then, and he'd drive their boyfriends crazy telling them what Lisa Grace and Minnie were a-thinking, and tease the gals by telling them what the boys were thinking about. There weren't no harm in the boy, though. It was just all teasing, but it just weren't decent somehow, so I took him out behind the woodshed and give his breeches a good dusting 
just to remind him that that kind of thing weren't polite nohow. And Reverend Doan, he ain't never done it since. End of Year of the Big Thaw by Marion Zimmer Bradley Recording by Greg Weeks